I mean, it, it really becomes easy to wrap yourself deep into a theory. And in fact, that's sort of where your times go. Like you want to get into a certain corner of theoretical space. And then you want to see it from that point of view and then see where you can make a contribution or add something or like say, no, this connects over there. Um, but what's really challenging is to be able to do that and then go to a completely, like for instance, thinking about higher to theories and then to sort of uproot your entire mental system and then say, what if I'm a panpsychist now? <laughs> or what if I'm a global workspace theorist? That's very difficult to do. And I, I think people... You spend so much time trying to understand a particular point of view that trying to understand another one is almost it's 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 alien. It's difficult to break out of the conceptual structure that you had to build in order to understand in the detail that you do this particular way of approaching it. Which is why when you really look at what a lot of work is, when they object to another theory, they're just expressing their own theory in another way, so to speak. The objection doesn't really target the other theory. Because they haven't really put themselves in that position and fully thought out, like, from this point of view, what does the theory say? Which is why I always tell students, it's really easy to tear down another person's theory. What's really difficult is to say, why would a non-idiot come to this view? Why would someone who's not stupid but is intelligent have this theoretical outlook, which from my point of view is so strange or whatever? That's much more difficult because it requires sort of taking serious the other way of looking at things to sum all this up in my put it uh, together hopefully um i really endorse the kind of socratic idea about what philosophy is that the, to really to question one's own belief until you get to the point where you recognize that you don't know that that's what philosophy really is is a self a self-evaluation a self-undermining in a way everything that you think you're going to lean on as your fundamental crutch, that's where you got to focus on and say, why do I believe that? What's the evidence for it? And should I believe it? And why would a person who's as intelligent or more than me not believe that, even if you think it's the bedrock of your whole existence? And some people find that very unsettling, that you could question some fundamental, like, you know, like core, that there is a self, that there is a physical reality, that there is a God, or whatever that consciousness is. Really. It can be very unsettling. So I, I think that part of part of this, you know, um, this exercise is enlightening in that deep sense of enlightening that it teaches you not only about yourself, but about just something deep about our place in reality, seeing things from other people's point of view. And it sounds kind of like something casual you just say, oh, seeing it from their point of view, but actually doing it is very difficult. Uh, entering into another person's worldview seriously is very challenging. Richard Brown is a philosopher at the City University of New York and an adjunct professor in the psychology program at LaGuardia Community College. Uh, he has done very important work in the philosophy mind, consciousness studies, and the foundations of cognitive science. And he has broad interest across all sorts of areas of philosophy. Um, he has thought a ton about the higher order thought theories of consciousness. Uh, although that doesn't mean that he's a strict proponent of the higher order thought theories of consciousness, and we'll come to see what that exactly means here. Here we do a deep dive into the higher order thought theories. We take a look at some of their particularities, some variants, uh, what it means to experimentally test them and what the work there looks like. We talk about things like animal consciousness. We take a look at some of the implications that come out of higher order thought theories. So we take a look at what 
Higher thought theories tell us, tell us about emotions, what they tell us about well-being, uh, and, and other topics. Here is my conversation with Richard Brown. So how did you get interested in consciousness studies and the higher order theories specifically? Yeah, so it's kind of, I didn't expect to end up in that area. Um, I mean, I guess... I never, uh, I was always interested in consciousness. And when I took a philosophy of mind course, I happened to take it, uh, at a time when the Bloch and Flanagan and Guzeldor, uh, that's how you say his name. I apologize. I'm just saying it, but, uh, um, the, uh, consciousness philosophical debates, that big anthology that came out in 97 or 98. So I happened to take a class right when that book was being published and the professor that taught the class used that book in the class. So. Um, that was my first real exposure to, to philosophy in the contemporary sense, because prior to that, my education had largely consisted of, you know, the classical authors. And I thought of philosophy as kind of something like, kind of like dinosaurs, you know, something that used to be around and people did. And then like, it's, yeah, it's, it's ancient history. <laughs> it's not something people still do. I didn't, I didn't realize that. Um, and so it was that, that book, I guess it was. 98 or something like that 1998 uh where we were reading that book and i was like wait these people are still alive they're talking about like current things and so i became aware that there was more than this historical discussion and in you know in my meetings with the philosophers in the other classes consciousness hadn't really come up like you know uh mind brain identity had come up and personal identity had come up and mental content and these other things but you don't really get um, a presentation of the problem, the hard problem of contrast, something like that, you can recognize in at least Western authors um, in the history of philosophy. So that really drew me in was uh, finding out that A, this was something that was currently going on. And I realized that understanding the brain seemed really important to this project. And here was a group of people arguing about what the mind was, and no one in the room really knew anything about what the brain was doing. And that was kind of when I decided that I needed to go and take some classes in neuroscience as well. Um, and that's what I started doing. I started taking the biology classes and and um, any class that I could that the professor would let me in, even though I was a philosophy major, I started taking all the bio and psychology classes that dealt with the brain because I had this idea that uh, if you want to talk about the mind, then you should know something about the brain. I, I found out that's kind of a controversial idea, actually. And in the history of psychology and neuroscience, it hasn't always been very obvious to people doing it that that was something that should be done anyway so how did i get interested in consciousness specifically um i i wasn't at first i was interested in mind brain identity and that's really what the issue that uh that i was really interested in was the identity theory of the mind and of course consciousness is there because it's the identity between conscious aspects of the mind and the neural uh functioning or neural states, but it wasn't really the problem of consciousness that, that drew me in. It was trying to think about the metaphysics of the mind, generally speaking, and how something mental could be physical. And that was really the kind of question that, um, that sucked me in. And at that time, when I heard about the higher order theory of consciousness, I sort of thought it was obviously false. Like the first time I ever heard it, uh, we read a paper by David Rosenthal and I was just like, this can't be right. You know, I'm thinking about that rock over there and it doesn't do anything to the rock. 
And that's a kind of knee-jerk reaction that I found out a lot later <clears throat> is, a, is the wrong reaction. Um, if the if the theory is wrong, it's wrong for other reasons, not for those kinds of reasons. But when I at least when I first encountered it, I was like, yeah, this doesn't uh, the, this version of the theory doesn't make sense. Even though I did recognize that the idea that consciousness as inner awareness had some intuitive pull, um, and that seemed to to resonate with me. But I remember, like back then, just being very confused by representationalism and what the difference was between first order theories and higher order theories, and um, all of those kinds of ways of dividing the landscape only became clearer a lot later at at the at the at the like. At that time, when we read like a paper by Daniel Dennett, he's talking about coining qualia. Um, I just thought this is the most bizarre thing I've ever heard of. Like someone trying to say that there's no such thing as consciousness. It's only much later that you realize, oh, this is like you know some theoretical construction of of the thing that he's railing against or whatever. But at the time, I was just like, you know, Descartes never even got that far he never doubted i am conscious <laughs> so then it had taken this kind of doubt to a what seemed to me like an impossibly radical conclusion so uh, what drew me in so at, at the beginning then it was more of these metaphysical questions um and then uh you know i started taking classes with people that talked about higher theories like david rosenthal and austin clark and just realizing that there's a lot of interesting things to talk about there um, and that there's a lot of ways to misunderstand the theory. So it was a theory that as I got, as I learned about it, it, it start, started to make sense to me, not, not in the sense that I could believe that it was true, but in the sense that I understood like the different parts of it and how you could like construct a theory like that in enough detail that you could empirically check to see maybe if uh, it was on the right track. And that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to look at theories that made empirical predictions that maybe could be empirically tested or falsified. Um, and in the course of doing that, it turns out there's a lot of complicated issues that arise. Uh, and, you know, I don't really think of myself as someone who is like a, a true believer of higher order theories. I just think that they deserve to be <laughs> empirically tested um in a way that is fair to them uh because a lot of times they're misunderstood it seems to me um because you can dismiss them with a one-liner you know oh there's no inner awareness required i'm just aware of the world so i i do think that there's a lot of conceptual issues there that are worth working out but uh i wouldn't say that uh, the higher order theory is something that i like truly believe um it could be true, and if it were true, I'd be, I'd be pleasantly surprised. I'd be like, "Wow, okay." <laughs> I don't have a track history of like being right about these things, so it'd be it'd be a bit of a you know, surprise to me. <laughs> of course, I mean, you you don't have to commit yourself to something. You can just say that you're uh, interested in it as a curiosity, and you want to explore that further. Exactly. Well, there. I mean, some of these people out here are true believers, and they're like, "There's how could anything else be correct?" I, I'm, I will classify myself in that category. I think it's an interesting idea that should be taken seriously, as seriously as these other candidates, uh, like global workspace theory, um, attention-based theories, integrated information theory, some of the main kind of candidates that you hear in cognitive neuroscience. I think higher order theories should be 
uh, recognized as in that group uh, as a serious contender for giving us at least a part of the empirical story about the nature of consciousness. Or they're ready to be falsified empirically. <laughs> Either one would be progress for the science of consciousness. Right, 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 right. And the nice part is that it is in line with and working with and communicating with the relevant sciences. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's always, and there's never like an easy empirical refutation, even like classic examples like water is H2O. There was no canonical experiment that definitively proved that water is H2O. In fact, if you look at the history of it, what you see is there was a big debate about that experiment where they took some water and then separated the uh, the hydrogen from the oxygen. And you get one tube where it comes out one way and the other one where it comes out the other way. People were suggesting something happened in the tube and it changed it. I mean, so there were different interpretations of that experiment besides just that there was a chemical bond that got broken, which can became, you know, the prevalent interpretation. But it wasn't as though those other interpretations were ruled out empirically. Um, there was like wider theoretical considerations that had to come into play. So it's, it's not as though we're going to have some definitive experiment that's going to say yes or no, that this theory of consciousness is or isn't accurate. But, but rather what we want is a kind of a general set of predictions that the theory makes, which we can go and check to see whether we have reasonable reasons to think that this is the way things work or not, or whether we should revise or reject the theory. If someone really like back digs their heels in, then they could always find some way to interpret the evidence or the data in a way consistent with some general outline from a theory. Like for example, if you really think that higher theories are wrong and first order theories, by the way, as I use those terms, they just mean theories of consciousness, which either require some kind of inner awareness in order to explain what it's like to be us or which don't require a kind of inner awareness. So first order theories say, well, you don't need any inner awareness of your own mind in order to experience the world. Um, you just need some well state that puts you in touch with the world uh, external to you. And then you got to spell out like what the state is like or something like that, how it, how it actually works. Uh, but if someone's really committed to, to that view, then whatever the empirical evidence comes back, they can always find a way to say, oh, well, maybe there's some other way in which this first order representation's got to be uh, implemented or maybe this or that condition has to be met. So real diehard committed persons, and by which I mean someone who's already really deeply committed to a certain theoretical outlook, they can always find a way to accommodate that outlook. Uh, so I think it's better actually to sort of have a uh, non, not not necessarily non-committal, but an open-ended commitment, such that you could be swayed by the empirical evidence um, uh, in a non in a reasonable way, a non-ad hoc way, responsive to the empirical data, rather than trying to always interpret data through a certain theoretical lens. Right, seems like the healthy thing to do. Yeah, you, you'd be surprised. <laughs> right. So then that's kind of the formal takeaway from high order theories that for a state to be conscious, the subject needs to have some sort of internal awareness of being in that state. Yeah. Well, so it actually turns out that how you start, how you start things off is going to 
uh, matter. Not everyone who thinks of themselves as a higher there's going to agree with uh, any every given characterization. Um, so the way I think of things, yes, a higher order theory is one where you uh, some kind of inner awareness is required. Um, yes, there might be people who would disagree with that characterization, though, uh, because once you get into the details, like for example, some people might think, look. Higher order theories are ones that say you could have unconscious mental states, um, and so these are ones which you're not aware of as as being in any sense. Uh, maybe mental states which you have no no awareness of, um, and that that's kind of required in order to be a higher order theory. It's not just that there's a, that whenever you're conscious there's a state of inner awareness, but also that that's kind of detachable in a sense from the state. And I think that's a, that second thing is an optional claim. It could be the case that uh, every mental state is conscious in virtue of having some kind of inner awareness around and there's no unconscious mental states. So I wouldn't want to define a higher order theory as one that's committed to the existence of unconscious mental states, although it's certainly compatible with that. Uh, but I, that's why I want to emphasize that it's the inner awareness which is doing something. Um, and then the different kinds of higher order theories are going to be distinguished by the kind of inner awareness that they, and what kind of relation, what they think awareness is. Um, so if you think of awareness as a kind of perceptual relationship, then you have higher order perception theories that say that this higher awareness is sort of perception-like and that what you're doing is sort of perceiving your, your, your own mental, uh, life. Um, that's. John Locke's famous phrase, uh, consciousness is the perception of what passes in a person's own mind. So that's a way of thinking of that. And then you get Collins talking about inner sense. Um, you have the outer sense and you have the inner sense by which you are aware of your own, own mental functioning. Um, so that's one way of thinking about that. I think that um, for a while that was less popular. It's becoming, some people are reviving that, that way of thinking, at least ways that are somewhat similar to that sort of view. Uh, on the other hand, you might think awareness involves a sort of cognitive state, like thinking, um, that you can have states of awareness that make you aware of things which are thought-like. And so you might think of the inner awareness as a kind of cognitive representational thought-like state, less like a perception and more like, you know, thinking Chicago is uh, in America. So it's got intentional concepts. Uh, and then you have to tell a story about what concepts are and how they relate. So it can get quite complicated. But uh, then on the other hand, you might say, look, it's a little bit that that's the wrong way to think about inner awareness. Inner awareness has got to be something more direct, more like acquaintance. Um, so maybe inner awareness can't be these more familiar states like perception or cognitive states, ones that you could understand in a more straightforward cognitive science sort of way, perhaps they're like uh, uh, this more heavy duty notion of being acquainted with a thing. Um, so that when you have a conscious experience of red, it's like you being acquainted with the first order state. Uh, so then you have a, a bunch of different ways that you could go. Um, but the key issue seems to be how you think about the nature of awareness in particular in this, this role that is playing, uh, in this theory. And there's lots of different ways you can think about it and arguments amongst each person, each camp about, you know, this is the better way to think about it and so forth and so on. So 
it's not straightforward. There's no real like such thing as the higher order theory. There's kind of this general idea that inner awareness is going to play some role and then you're off to the races about, okay, it's sort of the same about in perception, right? Um, we have this idea that perception is something that by which we're aware of the external world. And then there's a million theories of perception. So there's no like the theory of perception. There's this theory, that theory of perceptual content, or that even if there is perceptual content, it's just something that people debate. So I think it's somewhat similar in the case of the, uh, and in fact, I think you get a lot of the same debates. I'm going way off on our tangent now. So stop me at any time here, but. Um, so in, in, pers in, in the philosophy of perception, you have a debate between so-called direct realists who think that our awareness is kind of a direct relation to some quality in the world. So that when I see a red apple, the redness is somehow a property of the apple and my seeing it puts me in a direct awareness relation to the redness of the apple, which is out there on the apple. It's a property of the apple. Um, so then on the other hand, you have representationalist views that say, no, you're not in some direct relation to the redness of the apple, but rather you're in a state that represents that there's a redness of the apple. And um, then you have debates about hallucinations and illusions and what's really going on and what the intentional content is and how you could be aware of that and what all that means. And in a way, you get a similar sort of debate in the higher order hand um, over whether what the role of the first order state is going to be. So in the perceptual case, the question is whether the, there's some object in the world that you're directly related to, which has a property, which determines what your conscious experience is like. Like the redness of the apple makes it that you experience red. It's just that you're aware of the redness of the apple that makes it an experience of the red. So there's two parts of it, the red and then you doing it. Um, whereas the representationalist thinks somehow there's the, the state which represents the redness and that is your experience of it so that it's not really you in relation to some uh, property of the object, but you're in this other representational relation to some intentional content. Um, which is the way in which you represent the thing. So that same debate transfers in a way to the higher order um, theories of consciousness. When you think about like the first order state, which you could think of as representing the redness in the environment, and then your inner awareness of that first order state, uh, which you think of as playing some role in you having the conscious experience, if you're a higher order theorist. So the question would then amount to what is the role that the first order state plays? Um, so one camp might be sort of like akin to the direct realist and they would say, well, the first order state has some property and the higher order state simply makes you aware of that property so that what it's like for you is determined by a combination of the first order state having this property and you being aware of that property in some kind of direct way, maybe like pointing or something that, that, that would, um, and that would be akin to the, uh, direct realists who think that we're in some kind of direct relationship to the property out there, except now that it's property of the first order state, as opposed to a property of the, you know, Apple itself. So there's the Apple, its properties, and then our first order state, which represents those properties. And then our inner awareness, which makes us aware of the first first state. So, so it's basically 
the same sort of view, but moved into the mind. Um, whereas you have a different sort of higher order theorist who wants to say, no, the first order state itself doesn't play that role um, because it's the inner awareness, which we could think of as a representational state representing you as, for example, seeing red. Um, and it's that state which makes it the case that what it's like for you is seeing red. It's because it's representing with a certain intentional content. Um, I am seeing red. So the reason that you experience redness is because you represent yourself as seeing red. Uh, the first order state doesn't do anything uh, in that explanation in terms of contributing to your experience. It's just the, you know, in the same way that the representationalists and perception think that, well, the apple doesn't have to be there. You could hallucinate the apple and have the same experience. So the physical apple is not playing a role in making up the uh, content of your experience. So too, this version of higher order theory says the same thing. The first order state doesn't play that role. It's the higher order state itself um, which completely determines the nature of your experience. So the two different versions of higher order theory would sort of split over whether they think uh, the, the, the way the, 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 the mental functioning at the first order level, whether it plays any role in making it be a certain way for you from the inside. So in that cap, are you imagining, now you, well, there is one imagining that you have a first order, first order state and then, then there's some sort of mechanism that takes you to a higher order state? Or how how is it that higher order states arise in this? Uh, oh, so there could be lots of reasons. Um, so one version of this, uh, which is due to Hakuan Lao, is that there's got to be some kind of system that does what he calls perceptual reality monitoring. So if you specifically think about this in terms of like neural functioning, then the argument kind of runs as follows. Suppose that you are some, you know, group of neurons in the prefrontal cortex. Well, then you have a bunch of neurons coming from the visual areas projecting to you and you uh, are getting signals from them. And we know that there is a kind of baseline rate of firing. So uh, that could just background noise. And sometimes the those visual neurons will fire because they're relaying information about the external environment. So that's signal uh, telling you that there's an apple or whatever's out there. Um, and then sometimes you're having a hallucination or a dream and those same neurons are firing. So if you're just thinking about the general way in which this works, it sort of seems like somewhere in the brain, there's gotta be a system which is in charge of determining whether or not some given set of, uh, neural firing is noise. Uh, so it should be ignored. Or is it really relaying information about the external world? Or is it a, um, a hallucination um, or an, another like, you know, mental imagery or some other like uh, non-veridical uh, set of firing? So what he thinks is that there's got to be some, 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 something that does that because from the brain's point of view, well, <laughs> this is a very meaningful distinction. There's always these these signals coming around, so you got to somehow figure out which ones are meaningful and which ones should be ignored and which ones are internally generated. Um, 
So that's a general argument that you're going to want to have some kind of system that's doing this. And then it, it, you could give an argument from computer science that they have these, you know, general adversary networks or whatever. That's a, these generative adversarial networks where they have a thing trying to produce it and then something trying to predict it. And this has been very successful. So you could run that kind of argument. Um, on the other hand, you could just say, who knows why, uh, you know, the, the psychology is many and varied and all sorts of causal connections are going on. And, um, I mean, I think the traditional story is that if you kind of started with creatures that never had this sort of inner awareness, um, then you would have to sort of figure out how they could get it. And like David Rosenthal has told one version of this. He says, imagine that there's some ancestor of a chipmunk that, you know, I assume chipmunks are conscious. Um, but imagine there's some ancestor of a chipmunk that wasn't conscious. So X hypothesis, let's suppose it doesn't have higher order states, uh, just because we're thinking about that theory, not, you know, just for, for fun. Um, so the squirrel by, according to this version of the theory could have all sorts of first order states and function in a way that you would recognize from Ned Block's paper called super blindsight, which is a fictional version of blindsight where a person is behaviorally adept at getting around the world, but has no conscious experience. Um, for people who don't know, you can go on YouTube and Google a video up of a, a monkey named Helen who had the occipital lobe of the brain removed bilaterally on both sides. In other words, the part of the brain that um, does the uh, at least pr the primary visual processing, the first stop into the cortex. And um, Helen can navigate around an environment, feed herself, grab and target food from different locations. In other words, guide her behavior on, on visual information. So that's a kind of blind sight uh, which is unusual, uh, but there's one rare case of this in humans as well. It turns out this guy, TN, people often talk about. But anyway, we don't need to talk about that stuff unless you want to. The point that I'm trying to make is we can imagine a case where a person has no, I mean, a, a chipmunk has no conscious experience, but all of these behavioral abilities because it has first order states, but no inner awareness of those first order states. So one way of asking your question would be like, how does an animal like that ever come to have higher order states. Why would they ever show up? Um, so one answer might be, well, there's some function or benefit that's added. Uh, and that's a typical answer that somehow monitoring the system gives you more control over the system. Um, that, that, uh, that's a pretty typical answer from people who like higher order theories that, that re-representing or modeling the first order behaviors as the system's behavior is a way of controlling or uh, predicting what it's going to do or something that's useful. Um, but on the other hand, you might say, look, there's just no benefit for this. It comes about because, you know, perhaps the, the chipmunk was chasing for a, a, a certain acorn and its visual system was representing it as being reddish brown. And then when it gets closer, closer, its visual system represents it as being um, uh, green. And the chipmunk spontaneously notices that the way that it experienced the, uh, <laughs> the what was it, acorn, I forget what my example was, uh, was different in these two cases. So then it comes to just have the concept of these mental qualities. 
um, so that it could happen spontaneously by noticing errors in one's experience. In other words, uh, you simply come to notice that, oh, the way I thought this was isn't the way it was, and thereby acquire the concept of, of these kinds of first-order states. Um, if one came to apply these things regularly and reliably, then that would be the emergence of consciousness, according to this theory. So there's, a, as usual, there's a lot of ways you could go. So why would a higher order states ever arise? Um, it could be that there's some usefulness to it. So that's why it could be that there's no usefulness to it. And there's some other story that this is a spandrel, something else that just happened. Um, so, uh, yeah, there's lots of reasons. Right. That makes sense. Um, on the on the other side, then on the representational higher order theories, do you generally find yourself more attracted to to that side? Yeah, I mean, so I've developed a version or tried to develop a version of higher order theory that that I could like understand, um, and so I call that the higher order representation of a representation. Which, when I began, I thought it was kind of just your standard higher order theory, and then people start telling me no. So I was like, well, it's a version of the theory that at least I can understand. So I'll call it the horror theory um, simply because that's what I think is important is that it's a, a representational theory of consciousness. And what I found in my own like educational trajectory was that people would always tell you that higher order theories are representational theories of consciousness. That's like in every introductory text. Higher order theories are repre representational theories come in two kinds, first order ones and higher order ones. And then they go on and then they don't really treat them like representational theories, or at least it didn't seem to me. Because representational theories are kind of well known in first order circles. <laughs> you know, there's Michael Tai's panic theory and um, where to, to have a representation that's conscious in the right way is to have it poised for have it abstract and poised in the right way and have a certain content, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, people have to talk about what kinds of content and how it doesn't have to master the world. And so there's a whole debate about representationalism. Um, and it just seemed to me that higher theories were not really connected to that debate, even though people were going around saying they are a version of that kind of theory. Um, so I set out trying to say, well, okay, well, if you wanted to say the theory in those terms, what would you say? And the base, that basically amounts to taking the idea of inner awareness and casting it as a kind of representation of one's own mind um, so that uh, that makes it a, a way of trying to spell out in some detail what you mean. Because then you can say, well, what do you mean by a representation? And what do you mean by a representation of something that's mental? And how are these things going to actually be uh, implemented in a neural system like ours? And then you get all the questions um, that arise. Uh, so myself personally, I wouldn't say I'm most attracted to that view. Um, but what I would say is that I think that it should be taken as seriously as the other ones. And it's the one that's most often dismissed right out of hand. Because in effect, what it says is that when you experience red, that simply is an occurrence of a kind of like thought-like state to with something like the content 
I am seeing red, which has a lot in common with your ordinary thought. When you think like I'm seeing red or that thing is red or there's a red thing there, uh, if you think that thing's red, then you're thinking about the object. Um, so you're aware of the object there uh, in this case. If you think I'm seeing red, then you're aware of your seeing. So the idea is that the thought counts as a kind of awareness. Um, the, the thought is a kind of representational state. And so my idea was, well, gee, I don't know if it's a thought or not, but it's a representational state. And the representational state will have, you have concepts and the concepts we could talk about what kind of concepts figure in that state and how they relate to the experience according to the theory. Um, and then what you would expect to find or not find according to this view. And so it straightforwardly predicts that you're going to get kind of mismatch cases, which is where I think we're, we're where all the experimental results pay off. Right. So just for people listening, would you mind going into that a bit further? So what has the experimental record of finding cases of mismatch and then fitting them into that theory? Has What, what has that been like? Yeah. So there hasn't really been much of a record yet because, I mean, I don't know how much of this anyone cares about, but in my opinion, there has been a large misunderstanding of like what the traditional version of the higher theory says. And therefore people have sort of misunderstood how you go about testing it. it some people really like the quote unquote misunderstanding and it has become its own version of the theory, which I described as that uh, relational version of the theory early. But like, at least in the way that like David Rosenthal first presented, because he's kind of the main defender of this in modern times. Um, if anyone's uh, knows, he's uh, he talked to graduate center for many years, but uh, he's really done a lot of work trying to make higher order thought theories, this version where it's cognitive thought, like say, um, taken seriously. Uh, and there were other people who had, you know, David Armstrong's another famous uh, philosopher who was a higher perception guy, but um, since that time, there's been a kind of a lot of a lot of ways of going. But the kind of way that many people have thought the theory goes is just that there's this first order state, then you have a, an awareness of it, and somehow the awareness of it makes the first order state the conscious state. So that this thing, like, ah, it turns, it lights up, it turns on, it starts glowing with the phenomenal quality and redness or whatever. And if you have that version of the theory in mind, then you're going to go and, and try and find what you think of as the first order state, which is already hard to define in neural terms. But you, let's suppose that we think it's in the visual cortex. Then you're going to think that what you want to find the conscious states are going to be in the, in the neural cortex. Um, and in a way, the conscious state is ambiguous on the higher theory because you're aware of the first order state. So that is the state that conscious in the sense of you being aware of it. But what it's like for you to be in the state is determined by the higher order state. And that's kind of always confused people. So if you wanted to know what the experience of the person was like, you would look for the higher order state. If you wanted to know which state the higher order state was representing, so which state the person was aware of, you'd look for the first order state. So, um, so people have not really 
separated those two views out. Uh, it's only recently that we're, that people have started to sort of say, no, I officially declare I'm the one or I'm, I'm the other. Uh, for, for many years, there was just like people thought there was just this one version of the theory um, because the idea that it could all just be this higher order thought-like state is a very bizarre view that the experience of red is just like a, similar to a belief in this way because they seem very different. I mean, my belief that things are red and my experience of redness um, seem uh, from the inside to be uh, somewhat different. I would say they both have experiential uh, attributes. But anyway, so the point though is that um, on the version which doesn't allow the first order state to play the role in that making it the experience change, you're going to have cases, or at least it seems conceptually possible that you would have cases where you have the first order state representing red and the higher order state representing something else like green. Um, and that was kind of a traditional objection to these, to the higher order theory when it first came out. Like, what do you say? Is it like red or like green? Is it the first order state that makes it like red? You know, so the, if the first order state represents red and the higher order state says, I am seeing green, um, then it sort of seems like uh, you have a choice to make. Like, which way, to, what is the person experience? So you could say, well, nothing happens. It's too weird of a case. You could say it's like what the first order state says, like it's seeing red. Or you could say it's like the uh, what the higher order state is like seeing green, and so people thought this was a kind of objection to higher order theories. And my strategy has been to try to argue that this is not an objection; it's just a rather surprising empirical prediction. So it's it's a kind of a consequence of the theory that you should be able to find cases like this. So let's experimentally try to set up those kinds of cases and see if we have any of that kind of evidence. As of yet, that's not really been done. Um, instead, what has been done is people who like this theory have looked at experimental work already done and try to interpret that work in these terms. Whereas the other side has interpreted it in their terms. And what you have is like the experiments that are currently done, um, like Chicane's blindness experiments and Sperling, if we want to talk about those, we can. But these various things that people have done, they weren't done to test this theory but instead, people want to try to take that and interpret it and say, well, it's consistent with my theory, or, but it's consistent with the other one too. And so we've uh, kind of argued to a stalemate. Um, so it seemed to me that what you want to do is say, look, no, what we want is that to admit, first of all, that this is what the theory predicts, that in fact, you could experience red without the first order state at all if you set things up in the right way. Uh, now, first order states are going to be required in some sense causally to produce like the, the higher states or to give you the concepts or whatever. But if you invented a hypothetical thing, which I call a, a brain clamp, uh, similar to a voltage clamp, where a voltage clamp is a neuroscience tool that allows you to keep a neuron cl uh, clamped at a certain voltage so you can like test the, your various ideas about what ion channels do and so forth and so forth. Um, but if you could keep the first order activity clamped to a certain level, uh, like at a constant level, and you could vary the higher order states, then according to this version of the theory, you would vary the conscious experience of the person. Um, but uh, because it doesn't matter in any way what the first order stuff is doing it, in terms of what it's like for the person. Um, 
So that seems somewhat surprising. In fact, counterintuitive that you could like be experiencing red even when your first order states were, uh, you know, representing purple or the sound of an oboe or anything at all, actually. And your behavior would be attuned to those first order states. So a first order state is one that, you know, makes you aware of the external world. And by aware, we mean, you know, informationally responsive that you can do stuff. So if you have a first order state representing that something's purple, then you're going to behave in ways that suggest that you think that is purple. Like, for example, um, pressing a button, saying it's purple, um, classifying it in certain ways with the more blue things and less like the red things and so forth and so on. Even all the while, we might say you go around saying that it's you know red and experiencing it as red so that the two the higher theories typically want to brand or cleave off these two different aspects the first order states driving the behaviors and the higher order states uh responsible for consciousness and whatever functionality consciousness may have so on that's a debate so some some higher theorists think it has none whereas like i think it has some so i think that the the higher order states if they are if they work in this way um will have a uh, an effect on the first order states which keeps them active in the cognitive system so you could think of it as like by by becoming aware of the first order state you now have the ability to send it to working memory to direct attention to it um uh you know it's, it can be routed for further processing so that you can figure out you know more of the details or whatever so Whereas states that you're not aware of are going to fade away more rapidly on my view uh, and not be around for this sort of selection and entering into the global workspace and all that other stuff that people talk about. So I do think that the consciousness has a function, that, namely that the higher order state has a function. But I don't think the phenomenology part has a function. <laughs> I don't think that what it's like for you is doing that. It's just some uh, another aspect of the higher order state. So... As far as predictions are concerned, then that's so. If you wanted to test these different versions of the pyro theory, you would want to find cases where you could disassociate the activity of the higher order element and the first order element, and then see whether you get these mismatches. So, a relational version of pyro theory is going to end up saying, "Look, if you vary the first order state, then you're going to change the experience of the person." Whereas on the uh, kind of view that I was just talking about, the horror theory, changing the first order state isn't going to change as long as you could keep the higher state same that it's, it's not going to change the experience of the person. So, um, so there's an empirical prediction. If you could figure out how to uh, set up a case where you could change one or, you know, expect a difference at one, not the other, then you could differentiate these. Um, and the same is true for, you know, various sort of theories and so on and so forth. So I don't think, again, like just like I was saying at the beginning, I don't think any of these are going to be like a knockdown inclusive demonstration. But, you know, within normal science, that's not what you ever get. But it would still be pretty surprising if the theory says, look, you know, you could have an experience of a face even if your fusiform face area were damaged or missing, and then you could show that, in fact, that is the case. So first of all, you'd have to be relatively confident that that was like the first order area where face representations or activity was located, which is hard to do, it turns out. Um, and then uh, 
you would want to have, you know, that. so that would be very surprising. Um, so that's what you would like. You want a theory that makes a surprising prediction. Um, so that's cool. So I don't look at it as, a, as an objection. I look at it as like, as long as you could spell out the details, which is really hard, but assuming you could, then you have something that could actually um, be empirically tested. And rather, you know, so in a way, I don't want to get all grandiose or anything, but in a way it's sort of similar to like how I would view the EPR paradox in quantum mechanics, where it's like they wrote that paper as an objection, you know? Um, they were like, this is, uh, this is ridiculous. This was, look what would happen if your ridiculous quantum mechanics was true. And then they said, ah, well, experimentally, let's test it. And yeah. So rather than simply a philosophical objection, it became a testable hypothesis that actually ended up supporting the original theory. And that's sort of in a way what I would like to see these misrepresentation cases be used as, as to say, look, you know, you think it's an objection that well, this weird thing could happen. But let's go look. If it's weird, then it should be sort of refutable easily, right? So, what are you waiting for? <laughs> um, it, 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 the problem with higher order theories generally is that they were formulated by philosophers, and especially by philosophers who weren't really interested in the brain at that time. So, they're formulated at this total psychological level. It talks about awareness and first order states of awareness and higher order states of awareness. But how does that relate to what the brain is doing? So you need a whole separate argument, set of arguments to say, well, okay, so where in a brain would that be? And it's not really clear that we know where in a brain any of these things would be. Um, although we have hypotheses. And so I think that you can say, say, well, if this is what you think they are, then you can look for it there. And if this is what you think they are, you can look for it there. But I don't think you're going to get anything more than that at the at where we're at right now. Uh, the longstanding challenges of combining conceptual and empirical work. Yeah, exactly. I mean, just to like illustrate this more concretely, like we've been talking about first order states and saying they're states of the awareness of the world. So where would you find those in the brain? Well, you know, you might think it's obvious that if it's a visual state, it would be in the visual cortex maybe. Um, but where in the visual cortex? Is it in V1, V2, V3, V4? Is it only the mid-level areas that matter, like some people would say, or uh, are the states in these other areas relevant? Or perhaps, like global workspace theorists think, the first-order states are the ones that are globally broadcast. They're the ones, the, the states that account as awareness of things in the environment are the ones in the global workspace. So maybe it's, and that would be states all the way in the prefrontal cortex and the parietal cortex, so they're well, well out of the visual cortex by the time they're in the in the workspace one would think um depending on how you spell out the details of what being in the workspace means so the point is that you might even think that first order states are in the front of the brain um as opposed to back here it depends on what first order states are so uh first order states are defined pretty clearly as awareness of things in the external environment as opposed to awareness of my own mind but then yeah, well, gee, you could even be a like a Denene, a someone a Dennett person who thinks you know there's no mapping from the mental states to the brain states because these are like theoretical posits that uh, are useful and describe the person, but that aren't psych aren't neurologically real in any sense. Um, they're just you know uh, what you have is a bunch of 
stuff happening in the brain. And then it's useful for us to describe it as, oh, here's a thought, there's a belief. But, you know, anyway, so there's a whole range of views you could have about the relation of these psychological states to the neural states. And a lot of other theories of consciousness are, like, made up by scientists and so are explicitly put in terms of, like, this part of the brain, that part of the brain. Um, and, that, and the higher theory isn't exactly like that, so it allows for a lot of variation. I, I think it's not really that unusual, though, if you realize that first-order theory simply means theory where inner awareness isn't invoked. And so there's tons of those kinds of theories. IIT, integrated information theory, is a first-order theory. Global workspace theory is a first-order theory. Michael Tye's panic theory is a first-order theory. So, you know, what unites those theories is simply that they deny a role for inner awareness. So there's a ton of different versions of first-order theory, just like there's a ton of different versions of higher-order theory. Um, it just, uh, it's just that people haven't really paid attention because most people don't make it past that knee-jerk reaction where they just go, this is... What? You, you, we don't need that for consciousness, which is the reaction I had as well, by the way. But it just turns out that if you think about it more, I think that there's a more interesting, th more interesting things. But I would love it if it were empirically disconfirmed. I mean, if we, some of these, if it came back that this was wrong, then I'd be like, that's fantastic. So it wouldn't really bum me out. Um, I, I don't really have, you know, I, I sort of still think that well, even though I don't think the higher theories are like obviously false, uh, I sort of think that they're intuitively weird. <laughs> uh, and also that every theory of consciousness is kind of a bit strange. So, you know, something a bit strange is probably going to be weird, uh, be, be true at the end of the day. And the higher theory should be counted amongst the strange views that we take seriously. I mean, if you're, you know, they're as, as should be taken as seriously as any other of our theories of consciousness, which they often aren't. Right, right, right. I, I think it's it's really, really important to not feel like you have to identify with something and and, and be a true believer um, and just say you're interested in something, right? Like, I think that really, really holds us back when you have to tie yourself in so strongly with something you're just curious about. It's true. I, I agree. Yeah, there's a lot of pressure to, like, identify with a camp. Um, and people always like saying, you're a higher-order theorist, and like to me, you're a higher order guy, right? It's like, well, uh, I think it's an interesting approach. But yeah, I don't want to think of myself as like a higher order person. I think of myself as like a highly skeptical person who is deeply confused about a lot of these issues. And I have like, you know, in intuitions or convictions, but often I find myself arguing about these things as ways of trying to figure out what I myself think about things by arguing with people smarter than me and saying, well, here's what I thought was the case. Now tell me why it's wrong. Like, show me where, and then I end up changing my mind. So I, I feel like, uh, when I first got into this stuff, I thought that certain things were obvious. Like I, like I said, I thought this, when I first read this paper, I was like, this is obviously false. Um, that was my immediate reaction. Cause I sort of thought that you could tell which things were obviously false by your immediate reactions. Now I, I don't think that I think that the, um, I had an experience of like getting to a point where I realized that I understood enough about philosophy and science to recognize that we weren't anywhere near having good answers. <laughs> so that what we what we're trying to do is like explore the territory of what might count as a good answer because we're not sure. 
So we don't want to limit ourselves uh, because, and, you know, and that's why, you know, panpsychism is on the table and the things that a lot of people might ridicule, I, I find, um, worthwhile to think about because I, I really don't think that we, uh, we have a good grasp on this stuff. We gotta wait for GPT five. They don't know. Ah, <laughs> uh, the Twitter posts. <laughs> uh, but pentakism specifically, uh, um, uh, what have you found useful in the conversations that have occurred around it in recent years? Well, I think that for me, my background commitment to physicalism has always centered on the quest to understand mental causation. And uh, while I understand that epiphenomenalism is a conceptual possibility and there's all sorts of like logically possible scenarios where consciousness doesn't have a kind of a, a role to play in producing behavior, I just find it intuitively tremendously compelling that the mind causes physical things and that physical things cause mental things. Um, compelling enough to the point where I think that a theory which made that the case is a better theory than one that doesn't. And you could debate about that and, you know, there's tremendous debate, whatever. So, but that's my own assessment. So, in fact, the traditional case against dualism kind of centers on how does the mental causation work, um, which I don't think is fatal to traditional dualism, by the way. But anyway, it's a, it's a, it's a good starting case. Um, so I, that's why I was always attracted to the identity theory. Um, and I didn't really like functionalism very much. I've kind of come a little, become more friendly to functionalism in my old age, but in my early days, I was like, no, functionalism bad. Uh, but yeah, functionalism probably okay. Uh, anyway, so the identity theory gives you the most satisfying view. If the mind is the brain, then mental causing physical is just physical causing physical. So uh, physical causing mental is just physical causing physical. <laughs> so, uh, or mental causing mental, depending on, you know, how you want to do these things. So I used to spend a lot of time thinking about the identity theory and, um, you know, being upset that people would say that, you know, posit these identities and then treat them as though they're distinct. And, and reasonable theory that happens a lot, by the way, people will, uh, people recognize that like, um, you know, G flat and A sharp are the same note, but that it's useful to treat them as distinct. And then you get people saying, no, they're not the same note. They're just enharmonically identical, which means they sound the same, but they're different notes, don't you know, because they're in different scales and they appear in different contexts. So great. So it's useful sometimes to treat the things as distinct, even though we recognize that they're really the same thing in some set, or even, I don't know, musicians might debate me about whether they're really the same thing. Um, as far as the sound goes, they're really the same thing. So there's only one sound there. Uh, anyway, so it's kind of interesting when you get into this debate. And that's how I was thinking about the identity theory is that there's only one thing there, the, the, the mental state, which is the brain state. And then like what I found is that people will maybe say stuff like that, but not really take it seriously like that. It, that there is the, the same thing um, that they still want to make preserve them as distinct. So I, I spent a lot of time. Um, talking about that, but the main motivating for motivator for accepting that view was the mental causation stuff. 
And functionalism, I was, you know, always kind of puzzled by how you get the same view because it's the abstract state, which is what the mental state is, right? Not the implementation of it. So, and there's a whole bunch of debates about that. I'm not trying to say that's a knockdown argument, or anything, but it was something I always was puzzled by. So I always thought identity theory was the best view. If you want to explain how the mind and the brain interact, it's just, they're the same thing. So no, no problem. Um, so yeah, I know you asked me about panpsychism. I didn't forget. But uh, how, do, how does panpsychism come in is because it showed in a kind of clear way, I think, that there can be a, a non-physicalist version which gives you a kind of mental causation in the same sort of way. Um, I mean, I even like quantum versions of dualism because they allow the mind to like play a role in collapsing the wave function, although they don't give the mind much control over the outcome of the collapsed they do allow that it has some causal effects. So I, I even think, you know, those aren't great, aren't bad views. But anyway, so if you take the modern version of panpsychism, which says, you know, okay, so physics tells us what these things do, but not what they are. So maybe what they are is consciousness. Um, well, then if the brain is composed of a bunch of physical states and those physical states really are consciousness, then when the brain does something, it's consciousness doing it. So if you really, if that identity is, is, is true, then you can understand why the mental states is having some physical effect. So making that, to me, that was the, the benefit of panpsychism. It, it made clear that you could have a, a, a version of this theory, which is compatible with like what science says, um, which actually has precedent in history because Physics has introduced new fundamental entities. The field is the big example, which everyone talks about. So maybe you need to in, in postulate some fundamental entity uh, consciousness and then see if you can explain it. So uh, that's what I found useful about that discussion was it opened up this, this discussion about what the causal role of the mind was and how a non-physicalist theory might try to account for that. I'm not saying it's successful because there's people who still ask questions about it um, and there's still, you know, objections, but that's why I think, um, I mean, where I get off. So, you know, what the, the reason why I don't become a panpsychist and I still prefer physicalism, even though I don't have zero belief in panpsychism, by the way, I, I would say I have a little bit, you know, a, a small amount of who, who the fuck knows <laughs> classified as over there. So, uh, anyway, but, uh, the reason why I don't kind of, the needle doesn't point over there is cause I just don't buy the arguments that are supposed to defeat physicalism, um, namely the, the a priori conceivability arguments. Uh, so I, I just think that it conditional on you finding that stuff, defeating physicalism, <laughs> then panpsychism is worth taking seriously. Uh, and what riles me up and makes me angry is when people act as though it's obvious that physicalism has been defeated or refuted. By the way, I don't think I've, I don't believe in physicalism. Like I said, I'm a pretty skeptical person. What I believe is that physicalism hasn't been refuted by a priori arguments. So I, I think that I, I, we don't have a reason to think it's false, not a reason to think it's true. Um, so, you know, I don't know if physicalism is true. But I don't think that zombies are conceivability arguments about Mary and what she may or may not learn leaving a room tell us anything about the nature of consciousness. That, that's where I object. Um, 
But if you find that that's sufficiently compelling, then I think panpsychism is a serious view. Um, and, you know, I don't know. The idea that consciousness is just a brain state is pretty mysterious um, in the sense that uh, some people have said, gee, I don't know how that could be the case. Uh, but other people have said, you know, how could anything be the case? <laughs> so I'm kind of in that camp. I mean, I don't know why is water H2O. It just seems like some things just are. And that's the way they are. And then what we do is figure out how they work and not why they are that way. Uh, I think that's a weird way to think about what science does. as telling us why. I mean, Aristotle thought about it that way, I would say. That Aristotle thought the job of science was to tell us why things have to be the way they are, necessarily. <laughs> that they have to be this way. And then his answer was they have essences of a certain sort. And then you well, we'll want to find out what those essences are. Um, like, And then you... You know, you know what a thing is because you know what makes it that way. In a way, it's kind of, you know, echoing Plato, um, but in his Aristotelian way. So, great. That's wonderful. But uh, I don't really think of that as doing what, what science is trying to do is tell us what the nature of things are. Um, so a lot of this will boil, boil down to what your views about philosophy of science are. Right, right, right. There's... Um... It, it, these are all good points, but I think it's just sometimes a little frustrating when people want to knock down all of neuroscience or psychology or cognitive science, um, saying that they've failed. But, I mean, these things are so new, just give them some time, let them develop a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, um, I think that the the persons who are non-physicalists who are really committed to that view sort of don't see what you could discover that would change the way it is. So, I mean, I sort of get where they're coming from. It's, the most general version of the argument is just that, you know, you're going to learn about the structure and dynamics of the system, but consciousness seems to be somehow not involved with structure and dynamics. Um, and I agree that it seems that way. <laughs> Uh, I can, you could work yourself up into a rather dizzying flurry over this. And if you uh, meditate or take the right drugs or, or have other sorts of experiences, it can become really compelling that, gee, well, something about this consciousness stuff that's uh, unique and even feels fundamental, maybe. But the only question is whether you should take that face value. Um or what reason we might have for thinking that this is misleading in some sense. So I don't even know if it's a matter of like needing more details or, or further science. Uh, I mean, obviously that would be great. Um, but like my own view is that we should like what I call deprioritize the a priori arguments and a deprioritize I sort of st stole from the, you know, war on drugs literature in America where they were decriminalizing um, and deprioritizing, enforcing certain rules, but they weren't making it illegal. So now things have changed somewhat, but they were for a pile, for a moment, they were saying, look, it's not necessarily legal, but we're going to deprioritize it, which means we're not going to instruct police officers to enforce this rule. Um, so it's as though it's still on the books, but we'll ignore it for a while in essence. 
And I sort of thought, gee, that would be great to do, but with zombies. <laughs> zombies and Mary, let, let's deprioritize those things in just this way. Let's not say they're worth nothing, uh, but let's just put them on the shelf for a while because uh, they're not telling us anything useful at the moment. I think at the moment what they're doing is telling you like what you already believed about consciousness <laughs> and making it explicit. And and the analogy that I sometimes use is, is sort of like going back to water. If if you uh, you know if you asked Aristotle what water was, he would say it's a simple substance with no parts. It's obvious. Like look at it. Um, and then if you said, yeah, but your water is like a substance made of hydrogen and oxygen and this bond and this chemical bond, he's like, no, well, no, there's no parts um, to water. And then suppose that the Aristotle said, look, you know, I know that your view is false because I can conceive of a world where there's water, but no, no parts. <laughs> and then he said, so therefore, you know, this has no parts. Well, you would kind of go, gee, that's great, but we know it does have parts, so there's got to be something wrong with your thinking that you can like conceive of this situation. Um, you either have to say that you you misconceived it in some way, um, or that this is just telling you sort of you know it's a giving voice to your own theoretical commitments in a way. Um, so that the idea that I had was that in the fullness of time, if we knew everything, then a priori arguments would be great because we could a priori deduce this stuff and know what's right. But the, but that you have to know first already. Um, so that I do think that the, this, this is the reason I started this rant because of your comment that you said we got to give the science time. Um, so my first response was, well, you know, maybe you don't. But then on the other hand, maybe you do because... Um, it's only after we sort of have answered a bunch of these other questions that we're going to be able to say with any kind of confidence that um, we should change the concept of consciousness such that it does have some functional connection so that some connections are made or that we see a way of making these connections a priori or of recognizing that, you know, dualism is right because you'd be, these, these certain inferences can still be made even after you know all the details. Um, so I, I do think that if, if in the end of time, you could look at all the details and then know whether physicalism was true or false. Uh, but that requires like knowing everything about the brain and the way the world works in a way that we don't. On the flip side, on the physicalist side, what do you take away from the other big consciousness theories? So uh, global workspace theory and, and IIT specifically? Well, I think they're interesting and they could be right. So, uh, just like every other theory of consciousness, they have reasons for taking them seriously and reasons why they are the taken as seriously as they are. And they have, there are objections to them and reasons for wondering whether they are on the right track. Um, so with global workspace theory, it's 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 not a hundred percent obvious to me what being globally workspaced has to do with consciousness. Uh, I sort of know what it has to do with control of behavior and pushing buttons and walking around and stuff. But uh, if that stuff could be done without consciousness, then which you know that's an open question. But so it's it's not clear that there's any relation to consciousness at all. Um, if these things can be done without consciousness, so then it becomes a big empirical question that you would want. And by the way, we don't know the answer to whether there's 
these forms of unconscious processing. A lot of people think there are, but it turns out really hard to try to nail it down. Um, anyway, so uh, yeah, I don't think it's wrong, obviously, but uh, I don't think it's right, obviously, either. So uh, I, I, furthermore, I think that World War Space in particular has enjoyed some level of popularity because people take evidence for it that actually is ambiguous between different kinds of theories. So like higher order theories, for example. Um, people say, well, look, you know, when you see this consciously, there's activity in the frontal cortex. When you see it unconsciously, it doesn't get that, you don't get that activity in the frontal cortex. So this supports global workspace because global workspace says you got to have activity in the frontal cortex. But that's, I mean, I'm simplified, but that's very vague. Uh, because what kind of activity, what is it doing? So if that activity is a kind of inner awareness, then it's not being in the global workspace that matters, it's inner awareness. If it's being in the global workspace that matters, then we need to know the activity associated with that and look for it. So it, it seems to me that, you know, some of these, the same can be true for like first order theories, like people who say re-enter processing, that it's not just feed forward from the visual area, but somehow higher order visual area is feeding back. Okay, great. But what does that feedback mean? Is it a kind of inner awareness? Is is that the neurological signature of inner awareness? Some higher theorists have said maybe. Other people have said no. Um, other people have said, well, maybe the signal that you're seeing in global workspace theory is really a kind of backpropagation from the higher order system that's correcting errors that you can get. So, so how to interpret the the what the activity we're seeing is is open in all of these cases. So I, I don't really think you can, at, at this point, I don't think we can say that the global workspace theory is or isn't supported by this or that evidence without go looking at the details and say, have you ruled out this interpretation and that interpretation with respect to these higher order theories, which hasn't really been done. People haven't really, so this is the area where I think that should be done. Um, so, okay. Uh, my, my own kind of sneaking suspicion is that global workspace theory is a very good candidate for like giving you the states which you could be aware of, that the states that the higher order states represent are the states in the global workspace. Um, but uh, who knows? That's a, you know, we have to wait and see. Now, for, as far as IIT, I think that's a different story because IIT tries to, tries to, uh, start from the nature of consciousness itself, so to speak, deduce some truths about that then postulate some axioms on the basis of that. And, uh, therefore a lot's going to depend on, uh, the analysis of consciousness that you begin with. For example, one of their axioms is that consciousness is unified. Um, that uh, even though there's different parts of my experience, it's all somehow knit into one unified experience. And intuitively, maybe that's the, the seemingly the case, but it's not obvious that it is the case, um, especially once you start to look at what's going on neurologically. Um, could there it, could there just be the appearance of unique? Is it maybe that we 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 seem to have a unified experience, but maybe we don't? So, so I don't know what the answer to that question, but IIT assumes an answer to that question and then tries to build the theory of consciousness around it. So that to me seems to be, um, you have to be very careful because it's not clear that these axioms 
should be universally accepted. So for, also, for example, they don't include anything about higher awareness. So that, you know, they just say consciousness exists. Consciousness is consists of information and differentiation, blah, blah. Um, so there's various things, but nothing about inner awareness. So if higher theory is on the right track, they just exclude them by fiat. Um, so this, so that seems to me to be, you know, something problematic. Um, on the other hand, once you get to like their physical, their actual postulation that consciousness is integrated information, this again seems to me something that's more associated with the things we wouldn't want to call consciousness. So this, you know, Ned Block has said this seems more like intelligence when you have integrate information that's integrated um, in a way that allows uh, control or whatever. Um, I would want to say that this looks like what you would get from first order states. Like, why couldn't you have integrated information in first order states without any kind of inner awareness and therefore not consciousness? Uh, so just like with the global workspace theory, I think that probably this is a candidate of what first order states are, which states we could be aware of rather than a theory about what the nature of consciousness itself is. Um, plus there's all sorts of weird stuff about IIT and the exclusion postulate where they say that, uh, if there's integrated information and two systems have integrated information, then the system with the most integrated information is the conscious one where the the lesser one is not conscious. And that has the weird implication that you could become unconscious by becoming integrated to a system that was more conscious, um, how more, more phi or whatever, as they, um, put it. So, you know, I think these theories are interesting and they have led to some testable, you know, they have tried to test some of these ideas. Uh, I think the kind of zip and zap stuff that they do where they, they've, uh, used to try to figure out whether there's integrated information in, in like coma patients or persons in anesthesia uh, by measuring, by stimulating in a particular area and then measuring the spread of that stimulation and trying as a way to try to determine how interconnected the various areas are and how much integration there is. Um, it can give you, it can give you some useful information, but I, I, I think that there, I, people who like IIT, when they talk about like a consciousness meter or building something that you could like used to determine whether a coma patient was conscious or something like that. Um, I think we're a long way from, from that theory, being able to do something like, like that, even if it were right, um, from being able to build something like that. So, so these other theories, uh, you know, I don't have as strong opinions of, about them as maybe some other people do, but, um, I do kind of have strong opinions about people think saying this one is, you know, more empirically supported than that one or, or something like that, because I think that these theories are all supported to some degree or other by the empirical evidence in the sense that there's no obvious contradiction with any of the empirical evidence. You can tell a coherent story from each of these points of view. So what, what, what's more important than developing the theories and cherry picking a bunch of data and saying, look, I'm consistent is making a prediction that can then be tested um, that say, here's what the theory says you should find, and then you should go and be able to find it um, or confirm it or disconfirm it uh, to some reasonable degree. Remember, nothing's knocked down and all that stuff. But uh, um, so, you know, I, I think that we're only just now starting to see this happening, actually, where people are recognizing that we've done enough theory developing. We have you know, this handful of big ideas 
that are every, at every conference, you're hearing about versions, you know, it's like we got IIT, we have higher order theories, we have well, now higher order theories anyway in the last 10 years. Um, we have uh, theories based on attention, um, global workspace theory. But when you look at what these people are actually doing, what you find is that there's not a lot of crosstalk and that each paper, which is presenting some evidence, is testing one of these theories using a particular methodology. And actually, when they did the analysis, they could determine which theory was going to be supported just by looking at the approach. So if they use like this change blindness approach, you can tell it's going to be like a global workspace theory that they're talking about or if you use this other. So it's like these little silos of, of these theories where there's people that are interested in theory doing a certain kind of work uh, based on that theory, but there's no not a lot of connection between the two saying, hey, my theory says this. What does your theory say? Let's test them together jointly. And recently there's been some, you know, attention to this exact issue of trying to get these uh, these guys together in some way to make joint predictions that can then perhaps narrow the field down or help us consolidate these ideas or somehow, you know, move towards a standard model or a working model or some side of general uh, background assumptions about how these terms should be mapped onto the various empirical things. Um, so, you know, the Wild West is trying to be tamed. <laughs> uh, we'll see if it, if they succeed or not. We're, we're hopeful, but uh, you never know. I mean, you know, the, the, the Templeton Foundation is funding some of this research, uh, and they, there's a, a big project with IAT and global workspace theory. And, you know, you can have your various feelings about Templeton one way or the other. Some people do, but... Uh, uh, all I can say is that they're willing to put up a lot of money to help try to f accelerate these uh, um, these 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 results. I mean, some people think this is a bit dangerous because it fosters the idea that there's like a definitive experiment by which you could prove or falsify these theories, and no one really should believe that, um, as we've been saying this whole time. But I still think that it's important to get people together, say, what does your theory actually say, and how is it different than his or there? <laughs> And now, what would it mean about what we could test? And so that's promising, at least. Anyway, so you're asking me what I got out of these other theories. That's what I would say is that uh, um, each one's interesting, but uh, it's time for them to sort of get out and talk to other people more. Yeah, the the administrative side of studying consciousness is is, is real weird. Like, on one end, it feels like it should be yeah, its own field with people working together, but in on another end, it seems like, well, no, these these things are so complicated and, and they draw from so many different fields that you can possibly imagine uh, how that would work. So it's difficult to imagine how you would blend these things together. Yeah, exactly. So it's difficult. Uh, and that's why you sort of see it kind of split in the conferences. So we have the, you know, the Arizona conference, the science of consciousness, and then you have the association for the scientific study of consciousness. And they were sort of formed by mostly the same people at mostly the same time. Um, but but the difference between them was always kind of that one was, you know, more in inclusive and one was more cognitive neuroscience based in a sense. Um, that one was focused more on the like normal science of the day and one was like, you know, would allow more exploratory approaches, you know, quantum mechanics and, you know, um, conscious universes and stuff. So in that sense, yeah, you can kind of see that there's this general broader field called consciousness studies where people are interested in these more general questions. And then the more narrow field of 
the cognitive neuroscience of consciousness, um, where what we're interested in is just using the models from neuroscience as and cognitive neuroscience in particular, um, as we understand it now, can we generate a kind of model um, for what conscious experience is? You know, and we have some of these things, maybe, you know, I, I can't really think of a good one, but, you know, think of something like deja vu uh, or, you know, I don't know, whatever. Uh, we have a pretty good understanding of what might count as an explanation of that in terms of like unconscious processing, triggering of, um, of memories given some visual cue that you're not consciously aware of. Um, uh, and then you mistaking the sense of familiarity from the triggered memory and with the thing that you're currently visually perceiving. So we have a set of cognitive mechanisms that we've developed in other areas, you know, yeah, change blindness and um, but implicit processing, unconscious processing, et cetera, um, uh, priming. So there's a bunch of stuff. And then we could use that in this other explanation. So that's kind of how I think of the cognitive neuroscience of consciousness. Like we have a bunch of stuff that we've been talking about. We have representations, we have cognitive, we have theories of perception. Um, uh, using those ingredients, can you say anything about consciousness? And that's what the, the theories that we have are trying to do. Outside of that are the theories which are more metaphysical in nature, which, you know, like panpsychism, I sort of think of as compatible with any of these views in a way, um, because you could, the panpsychist says, look, there's these fundamental things that are conscious, but then they have to be put together some way in a way that um, results in your consciousness. So maybe that has something to do with IIT, or maybe that has something to do with higher order theories, and maybe that has something to do with first order representations, maybe some way when the brain becomes organized in thus and such a way, the little tiny ingredients are put together in thus and such a way. Um, so I don't know, you know, I'm not a fan of psychics, but I, I think that, uh, even they could kind of just sit back and wait to find out what the ultimate neural correlate of consciousness was and say, yeah, great. And so that's our, going to be part of our explanation for why human consciousness is the way that it is. Um, uh, even though in order for there to be consciousness at all, you might have to postulate that the, you know, quarks or fundamental elements are, are conscious in some, some fundamental sense. So. I sort of see them as separate projects. You know, one is dealing with med. I don't think science really deals with metaphysics. I mean, science, everything that neuroscience tells us could be true, even if idealism was true. Um, so idealism just says, you know, the, everything is mental and then great. So we're studying the, the mental then. Um, but it still might work like that for some reason. Uh, yeah. So. Yeah, sorry, I kind of trailed off there, but I, I got an email, an email just binged in my ear, and I was reading it. Uh, so, but anyway, my point is that I, I, I think there's two. Se I was trying to say there's two separate projects. I think, um, the, and you were saying, you know, it seems like these guys should work together. On the other hand, it seems like they're coming from such different areas. How could they work together? So I would say, yeah, there it does seem like in one sense there's two separate projects. One, the metaphysics about the nature of reality. It does consciousness have some deep place in that nature of reality. And then the other one is like, uh, given what we know about the brain, can we construct a theory which tells us something about, well, I would say human consciousness is where you want to start, but just consciousness in general would be great as well. Um, and maybe 
you might think that they go together in some way, but I think they could largely be separated. In which case, you know, the cognitive neuroscience of consciousness can kind of just proceed along and the panpsychists and dualists of the universe can kind of just go cool and not really have any, any beef with it. Um, because the real debate comes when you say, uh, look, could you have that and lack consciousness? Um, is this like the necessary sufficient conditions for a conscious experience, um, et cetera. And there you get into all the other debates, which are waiting, no matter what your ultimate theory about how the brain does, so it does is. So, so I don't, by the way, just to sum this up, I don't think that it's an objection to panpsychism to say that it's not empirical or it doesn't make it predictions or something like that, because it's starting from the assumption that there's a piece of data, which isn't explained namely the existence of consciousness, and then postulates something to explain it. Uh, whereas the physicalist starts from the assumption that you don't need that other thing. So, but they both agree that the science has says the physical world works this way. Yeah, I, I've, I've definitely heard you talk about it before, but the the stuff on human consciousness and animal consciousness, the the, the scientific work on animal consciousness is very, very interesting, but... I do find it kind of troubling when people conflate the the science side of it and the moral side of it. Um, is that if if you're waiting for science, if you're waiting for the science to be out to make moral decisions about how you should treat animals, then that uh, <laughs> that's not a good strategy. Yeah, it's not a good strategy. Exactly because I mean, this is just a general feature I think about ethics is that you don't want science to settle your ethical questions. Because it might suddenly turn out, I mean, Peter Singer made this point a long time ago. He's not as popular, I guess, among some circles as he used to be, but uh, he sort of made this point a long time ago. Look, if you, if you, if you, if you think that people are equal, um, or, you know, that, uh, people should be treated in such a way, uh, you get equal consideration or however you want to define that, um, then you don't want to base that on some empirical fact about persons because you might find out it's wrong and then you'd be committed to the claims that oh, we're not equal. So this is kind of a, a moral claim. It's it's a different kind of claim. It says you should treat people equally, not that empirically we've discovered that they're equal or something like that. So, um, and I would say that, uh, yes, that's the right way to think about animals is it's sort of intuitively obvious that they're, um, that deserve some moral consideration. You could debate how much and to what level, but I, I think that it's kind of to argue that they, that they can, that, you know, the pain of an animal should be taken into consideration to some degree or other. To seriously argue that is sort of insulting and it's like, uh, I don't want to say like mind boggling out of touch with the reality, but something along those lines. But yeah, I meet people who want that. That's first, you got to convince them that the pain of the animal matters. And then you've got to go on and debate about all the rest of the stuff. And I just, uh, or even that they do experience pain. I mean, um, even if they didn't, I think the precautionary principle, which says, you know, just to be safe on the safe side, assume. <laughs> yep. uh, so their behavior is, is too, too convincing. I mean, I, whenever I tell my students, you know, you know, did you know Descartes believe animals don't feel pain? Their, their reaction is almost like disbelief or like, how could anyone believe this? Then you could kind of go a long way to convincing them that we don't really know, you know, uh, by pointing out that, you know, uh, we're not dogs and they don't talk and so forth. But, uh, you know, Descartes' argument was if you built a dog robot that acted exactly like a dog in every single way, 
And if you were raised in a, it's kind of a thought experiment where if you were raised like in a basement and you were a roboticist and you were just making these robot animals um, and you made something that was indistinguishable from a dog in, in complexity of behavior, purely mechanically, and then you were let out of your basement and you went outside and saw a real dog, you would immediately conclude, oh, it's just like my mechanism. And you would immediately think, yeah, it's just a complicated mechanism. So it'd be, you know, and then he had this other idea that mechanisms are not for consciousness, which some people might disagree with, obviously. But uh, um, anyway, so he had an argument for a while, a conceivability argument that uh, if you could explain the behavior of the thing purely mechanistically, then you would become convinced that it wasn't conscious. <laughs> which, you know, uh, I guess since he was a dualist, makes sense. Uh, but uh, some people might say, no, you just explain consciousness. Anyway, the the point though is that I think that, yeah, there first it's you should just start from the kind of moral claim that they matter to some degree, but also that it's not pain that always matters morally uh, or even um, experience at all. I think other intentional states can matter just as much. So a lot of people have made the idea that well, animals can have intentional states like desires, and frustrating their desires is bad in and of itself, and so. I think that's true. So I think they feel pain and it's bad to frustrate their desire. But uh, yeah, the science, but, but trying to figure out. So he, first of all, I wouldn't want to hang too much on the science of consciousness telling us that they feel they do or don't feel pain. Uh, on the other hand, I do think it's an open empirical question. Uh, what would count as evidence that they do or don't feel pain? So especially the lower down you go. So if you have a certain kind of fish, for example, and you know the fish um, has a very uh, simple brain, so it, it doesn't have like what we consider parts of the prefrontal cortex, doesn't have maybe even much of a cortex at all, but it still has the ability to sense damaging stimuli. So if you take a bee stinger and sting its lip, which seems kind of mean, but the, the fish will like, you know, grimace and swim in a certain way. And um, get engaged in a certain behavior, but you might wonder whether that's the whether it's experiencing anything. Uh, yes, it has the behaviors, but so do simple single cell organisms. If you drop acid on them, then they change their location, withdraw, et cetera. So, um, so the question of whether behavior is enough to know about conscious experience is a deep and vexing question. I think the answer is that it's not obvious that it is, but we don't have anything else to really go on in the case of animals. Um, so, of course, we find ourselves in this vexing position. The interesting thing is that you can kind of connect this to artificial intelligence because we're sort of in a similar position there about what we count as evidence of, of them having conscious experience. Um, so, you know, my, my old position is to say we should start with humans first. <laughs> Uh, so that the science of consciousness should proceed using humans um, and to get at a theory that we could kind of all agree on in the human case and then to see what degree or other that theory can be extended to other animals and what kind of behavior that they have, um, which may lead us to believe that there are, you know, different theories of consciousness for different organisms or if we're really convinced by the theory of consciousness that they, the animals that lack it, lack consciousness. But like if you're a higher order theorist, for example, some people will say, oh, well, gee, well, then you, animals aren't going to have these cognitive states or these inner awareness states. To which I say, 
why, why wouldn't they have them? I mean, if a chipmunk is conscious, by which I mean has experience, and if the higher order theory is true, then chipmunks have higher order states. Um, if you think that higher states are too sophisticated to have, for chipmunks to have, then you have a different version of what the higher order state is required. So, I mean, it's not obvious that they need some real deep sense of the notion of experience or heavy duty notion of concept or linguistic abilities. All of these things are assumptions about what concepts are and what it means to possess concepts. If you have a kind of, you know, just a flat-footed psychological notion that having a concept means you can discriminate or sort things according to that, <laughs> uh, then it seems to me chipmunks do have concepts. <laughs> they can sort things into acorns and not acorns. They have a concept of an acorn. Um, is it like our concept? No. Uh, is it something they can like linguistically express? No. Nah. What is the structure of the concept? How does it work in their mind? I don't really know. But I just think that's from from their behavior, it's not unreasonable to say that they are thinking about the acorn, that they have a state which represents the acorn, that they even may be aware of that state in various ways. Um, so how far down this goes, I don't know. Could bees have inner awareness? I don't see why not. They have sophisticated brains. That's not, not exactly the same states, but they could have states of inner awareness. We'd have to say what they are and how they get realized in the brain. Um, so I don't think we are really in a position to say that. So just, a, I know I'm rambling, but just to ramble a bit more, we're not even sure like what the inner awareness we're looking for should be thought of. So some people might say, look, it's a kind of self-consciousness. So, you know, they're thinking about Sartre and Husserl and Sartre was always talking about, you know, pre-reflective self-consciousness and the pre-reflective cogito and you know, the, 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 I think before it becomes aware of itself, but it's still sort of aware of itself, but not. So then you get into all these, you know, interesting debates where, it, where the lineage starts from thinking of inner awareness as a kind of self-consciousness, maybe pre-reflective self-consciousness, but still self-consciousness. And then you go, okay, where in the brain will we find that? Oh, the parietal cortex over here, the insula, whatever. So then you would, think of looking in those areas and some pirate theorists that are really influenced by that line. I'm thinking of Rocco Gennaro and people in, in that tradition. Um, that's what they think. Uh, whereas if you think of higher order awareness as a kind of more of a cognitive state, um, then it's going to be kind of like metacognition, cognition about cognition. Um, it's not exactly the same as metacognition as psychologists use it because that's usually effortful and um, something you have to do on purpose and uh, conscious. Whereas this kind of thing would be implicit and done effortlessly and not something you're aware of, unconscious. Uh, so different in that sense, but still a kind of like akin to it, in which case, if you were trying to find it, you would look for areas of the brain that did metacognition, which would be more frontal areas. So just even saying, you know, what is inner awareness? Is it metacognition-like or is it self-consciousness-like? Is it perception-like? Well, then you might think it's in a different area. So before you even go to the B brain and start looking around in there, you would have to nail all this stuff down and say, how does all this stuff map onto what's going on in the B brain? And it's not clear. I mean, right now we have some guesses like, oh, the prefrontal cortex is involved in metacognition in some way. I, um, the parietal cortex involved in bodily awareness or something like that in some way. Okay, great. So if you interpret the higher order states as being crucially linked to one or the other of those, then that gives you something to look for. But it's not clear 
that we should think of it as in one way or the other. That requires an argument. That requires uh, an interpretation. So unfortunately, uh, the whole animal thing is pretty vexed, I would say, as far as like knowing what would count. And, and in the background, you kind of even further zooming out is a kind of like a uh, an assumption about the way reality works. So some people think that the way reality works is that stuff happens and then at some point brains showed up. Cool. Um, and those brains might have been unconscious completely and totally without experience, but still representing the environment and having cognitive states and controlling behavior and, you know, uh, getting around the environment pretty good. Uh, without uh, anything we would call experience. And in fact, they might even say, what you need to do is explain how it is you start from a brain with no experience and then add stuff to it so that you get experience. Um, okay. Whereas the other side might say, no, no, no. You start, some stuff happens, brains arise. And as soon as there's brains, they're conscious because there's something about maybe life itself or, con or brains in particular. Um, where as soon as they show up, boom, consciousness. So you don't have to explain this other thing that gets added on. You just need to account for the systems that make the creature like what, aware of the environment or something. So you, you so these two fundamental attitudes that one, you start with the assumption that everything is non-conscious and then you have to give an argument for thinking that it's conscious and how that could happen. Whereas the other side said, no, you start with the assumption that everything's conscious, uh, brain-wise, I mean, not everything and psychic. Um, you start with the assumption that it it's conscious and then have to give an argument for thinking that it's not. Um, so because they just have this fun, this different attitude about how to approach something like the brain. Um, now, you know, once you start going, being serious about this, then you have to say, well, what do you mean by conscious? Do you mean access conscious, phenomenal conscious, uh, introspective consciousness? Uh, the person being conscious is so there's you know a trillion concepts and it's not clear that everyone's talking about the same one but if you can get them to talk about phenomenal consciousness and what it's like to have the experience then the question boils down to when the brain shows up the first brain system um is there anything that it's like from its point of view by the way it's even an assumption that the answer is definitively yes or no because someone like dan Dennis is going to say the answer is going to might be kind of or sort of to which me, I don't really understand, but you know, um, some people are going to say, look, that question is too vague because it, there's going to be in-between systems that are partially conscious because, so I, I just think the whole thing is kind of not well understood. People have really strong intuitions because they describe really simple cases. You know, Mary's in her room. She knows everything. I've never seen red and you have this clear picture she learns. Good. But once you go through the details, it's so complicated that <laughs> if at the end of it, you're sort of not left befuddled, I just don't think you actually were doing it. <laughs> so that's how I ended up in the, you know, people are saying, you know, stop being so cautious and just pick a side or what do you really believe? Like what I really believe is that it's hard <laughs> and that everywhere you go, there's a million options that there's some reason to take serious. Um, so that it's, I think that they most reasonable thing to do is simply say it's a mess but even so if i lay them all out on the table and had to like distribute my my cards in various ways um then i would do so you know in the way we've been discussing and that some of the 
what would guide that would be this more general ethical consideration of give the benefit of the doubt in cases of uh, not knowing. Right. Uh, be be consistent with your day-to-day moral attitudes. We we, we don't treat children ethically yeah, because right. we recognize that they might feel pain or that you might find a way to empathize with them. You just Exactly. I mean, we, we treat them that way because it seems like they're in pain. Yeah. And if you spend any time around animals, then you, you must also experience the same thing. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think, you know, infant consciousness is the same thing. There are some, some theorists who are going to claim that like an infant isn't conscious, phenomenally conscious. And I actually saw someone on Twitter. I mean, I, I kind of had to stop using Twitter because it can suck you down a rabbit hole. But uh, I did, when I was on Twitter, I saw people, um, someone in particular, who I won't mention, anyway, they reacted very strongly to the idea that maybe uh, infants are not conscious. And some theorists actually th- think it's an open question and we don't really know. Um, and this person was like, uh, what? These, what's wrong with these guys? Like, it's obvious that infants are conscious. And in some sense, I sort of think that's the right response from the point of view of like a person, but it's not the right response from the point of view of a scientist. Um, because I think that, you know, personally, yeah, it's obvious <laughs> that babies are, uh, are conscious, but from a scientific point of view, I don't think it's obvious that they are or aren't. I think it's, it, what's really hard is knowing what counts as the evidence. So that is this methodological question about is the baby crying good enough reason to think it's experiencing pain? Um, well, it's a good enough reason to convince me that it is, and I should treat it that way outside the lab. But if I'm just thinking from an objective standpoint, then you could have cases where that behavior is produced in a non-conscious way. So then you want to understand, well, is this one produced in a conscious way and what makes it so? So it's again, that kind of depending on how you approach things. So do you look at the infant and say, well, it's got a brain, it's moving around, so it's got to be experiencing something. Or do you start with the assumption that everything could be explained non-consciously and then have to argue for the existence of uh, um, the, the mental state? The reason why I think that this, this theoretical issue should be separated from the moral ones because you get cases where this practically hasn't been applied in weird ways, like you know infants being circumcised without anesthesia um, because, well, they don't, infants don't feel pain, right? So he's crying, but... Uh, maybe not experience a face. So I, I think that even if you believe the theory, the way it's acting should convince you not to do it. Um, so I, I don't think that you should, uh, or another case, if you think like persons with hydroencephaly um, who have, you know, brain water in their uh, cranium instead of the brain, and usually often only have a brain stem or a limited part of the rest of the brain that develops, they can still smile and have certain kinds of behaviors. And some people are going to argue, well, that suggests they're conscious. Other people are going to suggest, no, that's an automatic response. But if you are convinced that they're not conscious, but then you treat that person in a different way, um, like by not flipping them over in their bed so they develop bed sores or, um, you know, arguing that they neglecting their cleaning routine or because, you know, it doesn't matter anyway if they're dirty, what if they don't feel anything? Um, I think that once you start thinking that way about a person, whether conscious or not, uh, bad things happen. So I, I would, that's where I would say, look, you know, morally where we should treat them in certain ways, whether or not we think of them as experiencing, uh, anything. And I guess that's some, some people think that's controversial. I, I don't, but, uh, what do I know? 
<laughs> so sh shifting gears a little bit, um, there's been some recent work done on emotions and higher order theories. Uh, do you mind explaining what's what's going on there? Uh, sure. Um, so what emotions are is obviously interesting topic, and there's a whole philosophy of emotions and a neuroscience of emotions. And there's a philosophy of consciousness and a neuroscience of consciousness. And you, and you might think um, that they obviously go together, but they often don't obviously go together in terms of the work that people are doing. So that you find people working on these sort of in different areas, not talking to each other. Um, but so for example, it, in the science of emotions, there's a debate which looks very much like a version of the higher order first order debate between what are called constructivists um, uh, about emotions and persons that think that there's kind of a, a, a basic set of emotions that are that we share with animals. So one one kind of camp says that emotions are learned, um, and that we're not sort of born innately with emotional disposition or capacities. Uh, but rather, we're, we're born with a general system which allows us to construct emotional responses. So that sounds a bit like a higher order theory where you have certain physi physiological responses that can be interpreted in, in one way versus another way. Uh, so, you know, you have classic empirical results where you, you give people a stimulant and they don't know it, so their heart rate increases and their breathing increases. And then you put one in a room with someone acting nervous and another one in a room with someone acting belligerent and one person will report feeling nervous and the other one will report feeling angered or excited. And it sort of seems that what's happening is they both have the same physiological stimulant. So their heart is racing and their breathing is increased, but they're interpreting like, oh, I must be agitated because something is nervous in, in this room, or I must be agitated because uh, there's some reason to be angry. So you're telling yourself kind of a story about why your body is reacting this way. And that's sort of the emotion. Um, so, uh, that in, in the science, neuroscience of emotions, this is, you know, there's a lot of people debating this, um, in philosophy, we have the higher order theory of consciousness, what we've already been discussing, which sounds somewhat similar. It says you have these first order states and then you have your interpretation of them. So when I was talking, um, I actually met Joe Ledoux because of a music event that I used to organize called the Qualia Fest, which was a lame attempt to get a bunch of uh, neuroscientists and philosophers together to play music. Um, because it turns out that a lot of them do. And Joe has a band called the Amygdaloid, um, which they're gonna they're still playing. Uh, the Amygdaloids are you know he, they play what they call heavy mental, heavy mental music, and they write songs about fear and anxiety and so forth. And uh, Ledoux. It's the guitar player and singer. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I play the drums and was had a couple of, you know, groups or whatever. So I, I got these these groups together to play uh, at this event in New York, um, not because anyone's any good, in my opinion, but just because it's hilarious to see neuroscientists and philosophers jamming together. Uh, so it was a free event. We never really charged money or anything like that to come, come out. But anyway... Uh, a lot of work to organize that stuff it turns out and then it got out of hand the new york times wrote an article about it and i was like oh man this is not the kind of attention we want uh anyway uh i got off topic the point is that's how i met joe <laughs> was by finding out about his band and emailing him and saying i'm 
a you know philosopher and I'm organizing this music event and would your band come to this shitty dive bar and, and play with a bunch of philosophers and he was like yes I will and he showed up at the shitty dive bar full on ready to, to, to play and did for four we had four of those quality lists. anyway so that's how I got to know him um, not through philosophy or science as it turns out but hanging out in the bar talking about music and stuff and you know I didn't really know who he was in the sense of you know, he's a famous neuroscientist. So I, I, you know, I'd heard his name. I knew he was well known. I didn't know like at what level he really was at that time. Anyway, so we started talking and it turns out that we sort of, we, we realized that there is this, like there, there's two conversations going on at the same time that we're using similar lines of evidence, talking about, you know, blind sight and um, missing certain parts of the brain, but still having the experience, like it's the same sorts of evidence but not really connecting them together. So the first idea that we had was we want to get these two sides of the debate talking to each other, the neuroscientists who do emotion and the conscious researchers, um, the people that are talking about higher order and first order theories because they have something to say. Um, and to sort of start the conversation, we wanted to offer a theory of the emotions in higher order terms. And that really you know, was Joe's, Joe's idea. Uh, he, oh, Siri thinks I'm talking about, uh, never mind. Sorry. <laughs> Get out of here, Siri. Um, how do you turn Siri? There you go. Okay. Sorry. Uh, anyway, so he had some ideas that he wanted to develop, uh, but he was, you know, wanting to phrase them or put them in a, in a way that other higher order theorists would recognize, so to speak. And, and the, to make a long story short, the, the basic idea that he had was uh, that the states of which we're aware might themselves be in the prefrontal cortex because there was at that time a common assumption that higher order theories were kind of committed to this simple division between the front of the brain being the higher order state and the back of the brain being the first order state, and this was be aware of that. Um, and Joe's idea was like, it might all be up here. There might be first order states in some areas of the prefrontal cortex, and there might be an awareness of those states in another area of the prefrontal cortex so that the whole system in a way is at the, at that level, anatomically, a higher order level. Um, uh, and that I think that his view is sort of that there's two systems that are joined together by causal links, but that like the amygdala first order system, that, that the lower order system can kind of be detached away from the higher system. Uh, so, and his idea was that, I mean, you know, so according to him and the view we developed, you don't get born experiencing fear. You get born detecting threats. So the amygdala is a threat detector and is in charge of what he calls a survival circuit, which is organizing a certain suite of behaviors, which are engaged when you encounter a threat. Um, and that can happen completely non-consciously without any experience of fear or anything like that. Um, uh, and over time, what you learn is that certain things are threatening to you and certain things are dangerous and certain situations are, you know, uh, ones that get you to think about being in danger. That's anxiety. Uh, so according to him, you know, fear involves a threat currently in front of you and anxiety involves thinking about a future threat or one that's in the past. Um, so 
okay, so you're learning which things are threatening and which things are dangerous. And you come then to, over time, not only represent that there's a snake there, but that the snake is dangerous to you, that, that you have been threatened by the snake in the past. And once you get to that point, you experience fear, uh, according to Ledoux. So the fear experience involves this explicit higher order awareness of you being in the presence of danger. So it's not just the detection of a threat. It's not even the guidance of behavior directed at avoiding the threat. It's this explicit recognition that it's you who's in danger rather than just that there's danger out there. It's, it's me. I'm in danger. Um, that's fear, as he would put it uh, in slogan form, no self, no fear. So he thinks that you've got to represent that as you in the danger, importantly. And those higher representations, he thinks, could be found in the prefrontal cortex, like maybe in the frontal pole, maybe in a network involving. There's different hypotheses you could have. Um, but the idea that kind of connects this to the higher theory is that rather than thinking there's two systems, one for my experience of red and one for my experience of fear, there's one system, uh, which just deals with experience. Generally, um, experience of red, experience of fear are just different ways that the higher order state can represent what's going on at the lower level. Um, and so what the, one of the analogies that he often uses is that like the emotions are like a soup, right? There's no such thing as a, a chicken soup ingredient. Um, there are things which you can use to make chicken soup, but there's, but it would, it would be wrong to think of as celery as intrinsically wanting to be chicken soup or, uh, to be something else. So same with fear. There's no, there's no thing which counts as, as fear, but rather it's what unites all elements of fear is that, uh, there's something that you think is presenting a threat to you currently, um, and so we, you know, we think you could have that without the amygdala. And there's a case of a woman with bilateral lesions to the amygdala. She was hailed as the woman without fear. And then they, there was a case where she could experience fear though. And there's this interview with her where she even says that when they asphyxiated her, so they put, <laughs> they, uh, put her in a condition where she couldn't breathe. And then she started having this fear response to asphyxiation. And even though her amygdala was gone, what she says afterwards is that she didn't Think there's anything wrong with her fear experience that it felt like fear um and so that's you know what we think is part of the evidence that you could have fear experience without the amygdala because there's no the amygdala will offer some content to the higher order state that that colors or flavors the fear in a certain way by tweaking the content of the higher order state if this theory is right but it, it, it itself is not the feeling of fear. The, the amygdala's activity is a non-conscious threat detector, which then activates this higher order representation of me being in a threat situation. And that could be activated in different ways as it was in this woman. It wasn't activated by the amygdala. She didn't have one. It was activated by something else. Um, it could be activated by, you know, your fear of, of, of being dead. So you might think about, gee, I'm going to die someday and suddenly you have this like, panic attack or something and there that would be you know higher state being activated not by the amygdala detecting a threat um but by your abstract conceptualization of the end of your existence triggering um this higher representation so that would be the idea is that it allows you to explain all of these various these different uh 
these different kinds of experiences with one single system. Um, and that uh, the difference between like seeing red and feeling fear is the, is the, exactly the difference between representing yourself as seeing red versus representing yourself as being in, in, uh, afraid of. Wow. All that from that gig. Yeah. All that from a gig. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes. All that from that gig. Yeah. <laughs> so continuing with that from a higher order perspective, what do you think of the idea of well-being, the psychological idea of well-being? Yeah. So I think that it's important to take into consideration the person when you're thinking about psychology or psychiatry. So I think that like, for example, a lot of CPT, like cognitive behavioral therapy, um, is aimed at the behavior of the person and maybe the way the person thinks sub, sub, sub personally or something like that. But they, they're not really worried about aimed at the experience of the person or what it's like to be the person. In fact, those things are not what you're taking into consideration. Um, uh, you're taking into consideration, like, how can I do something else, get them to reconceptualize what's going on or um, expose them to something or, you know, whatever, whatever the case may be. But you're not really worried about their, maybe in some abstract sense, you're worried about their well-being because you're trying to make them better. But really what you're doing is adjusting their behavior. Um, and the same is true with psychopharmacology. Uh, so if you take Paxil or Prozac, then, you know, uh, by the way, there's a whole big drama about that recently, which, uh, you know, serotonin is being currently reevaluated. And it's not really clear that we have as much evidence as we thought we did that these, this correlation exists between states of mood and states of serotonin. Anyway, but uh, yeah, there's been a big, big longitudinal study that recently came out which suggests it's not as clear as maybe we thought it was. Um, anyway, so uh, what was it by saying? Oh, yeah, right. So let's suppose that you're very depressed. Your mood is, you know, depressed. You don't want to go to work. You're not uh, interested in the same things that you used to be. You don't care about philosophy anymore. You're not reading your books or going to the after work functions or whatever the case may be. So you're depressed, like, you know, and suppose that this lasts for a period of time so that it becomes clinically significant, not just a passing thing over the weekend, but now it's months and months. Um, great. So then you go and maybe get some help and they diagnose you with depression. And then they say, well, okay, here's some medication, start taking it. Uh, and then you got to go to the therapy as well. Uh, great. So the medication we know is correlated with a change in behavior. So if you take the medication, then chances are you'll go back to work um, and go back to school and complete the after-school assignments or whatever. But no one ever says, like, I'm cured. I feel like myself again. Uh, I feel so much better. Like, gee, what a relief. So so that has not occurred. We, we, we don't have a cure for depression. Uh, what we have is something that alters behavior of depressed person. And that's good, you know, in, to some degree or other. It, they don't lose their jobs. They can carry on socially. But they don't feel good. And you can ask anyone who's ever, I've never taken Prozac or Paxil, but I've talked to tons of people who have. And I've never heard anyone say, it changed my life for the better. I felt great. I felt like my old self again. They, they say, no, I felt weird, like not like myself actually. Uh, but, but I was still, you know, able to go to work. And that's because that's what the drug does. And that's because when we study what the drug does, we test and on rats. 
So what you do is you shock a rat a bunch of times so that it becomes averse to the environment. And then you give it this drug and lo and behold, it goes back into that room where the shock happens. So you change the rat's behavior. But did you make the rat feel better? I don't know. What does that mean? How can we test that? We have no clue. And in fact, no one ever talks about that in the animal literature on this stuff. No one says the rat feels better. What they say is its behavior change. It's not, it doesn't, you know, it may not be afraid or feel anxiety, but those are code words for its behavior is such and such and blah and blah. Um, so in that sense, I think well-being is sorely missing from a lot of what we think of as therapeutic medicine. Because the, the subject, the person themselves, the, their, their state of mind, their experience, their conscious experience is not really part of the equation. <laughs> uh, it, it, yeah, you've got to go to therapy and they talk about how do you feel maybe in uh, therapy. Um, and that's, it makes you feel better. You know, talking to someone is good. Uh, talking to a therapist is even better. It does have some effect. It has about the same effect as taking the Paxil, actually. So, um, why is, why, why does the, we have this mismatch talking to people, focusing on well-being in that way, the psychological well-being of the person is effective, but not all by itself, very effective. Giving the person a certain kind of drug is effective, but not by itself, all very effective. So it kind of looks like the evidence suggests that you got to have a, an interplay between the two because maybe there's two systems here, actually. Maybe giving the drugs is affecting the first order system, which is changing the behavior, but not changing the experience. So that's why you've, the experience remains kind of the same, like, you know, not great, but the behavior changed. So the cause and effect drags one to the other. So you stop taking the drugs and you don't get the great effect anymore. Whereas on the other hand, the talk therapy may be adjusting the way you're conceptualizing the situation, the way you think about things. So your higher order states, in other words, the way you're conceptualizing it. And that may change your experience, but not the behavior because that's being produced by the first order state. So it's at least, uh, I mean, this is part of the argument that Joe and I were trying to develop in, in this. Uh, and this really is more, you know, he, he, he was the driving force behind this argument, but I agree with him and try to help him say it. Um, is that the, the, this might be because we're thinking there's one system here that does consciousness and behavior, but maybe there's not, maybe there's two systems, one for behavior, one for consciousness, maybe. And that's sort of what the higher order theory predicts is that there's going to be two systems. Uh, one that's involved, partly involved in the first order states which drive the behavior and one that's partly involved in the inner awareness that is the conscious experience. Uh, and you've got to focus on, on both of them. So. You know, and this is the dirty secret of the pharmacology sciences that there are no new drugs for 50 years. I mean, you know, we're still giving people Thorazine. Thorazine was discovered in the 50s. So, you know, great. Uh, we can say what Thorazine does on serotonin and blah, blah, blah. We can say what Paxil does to serotonin and blah, blah, blah. But uh, we haven't, on the basis of all of our new technology and knowledge of the brain invented some new drug, which worked better than these ones that we discovered kind of by chance. Um, so, you know, that's, that's somewhat depressing and has actually caused a lot of companies to pull funding out of research in this area because they're just not finding, I mean, you know, when you compare what's happened with antibiotics, like in my lifetime, when I was little, they just gave you like amoxicillin, penicillin, 
now we're like on third generation drugs that like are have names that I don't even recognize. And they're not cellins anymore. They're not based on mold. No, uh, we we discover something else about how to kill these things. So yeah, we can go back to that stuff if if we need to. But we have this whole other class of drugs that work in a different way based on our further understanding of what's going on. And we haven't achieved that in in the psychopharmacology. Um, and maybe that our suggestion is that's because we're focusing not on the experience of the person uh, because that's kind of a dirty word and we want to be you know, cognitive behavioral. Okay, but where's the experience? Where's the well-being of the person? What it's like to be them? So actually, I think that it's important that that does show up in there um, as part of our full understanding. I think some phenomenology is important. You got to have both ends of it. Um, you got to know what it's like and you got to know how the brain works and got to connect them. And anytime you try to ignore one or the other, you're going to end up with a problem. So, I mean, as far as the science of well-being and like what contributes to it, I, I didn't really talk about that, but I, I do think that understanding the experience of the person, like explicitly putting that up front and saying the goal of therapy should be changing what it's like for you, changing your experience of the world. That it should make you feel better. And that doesn't seem to be the explicit goal of a lot of this, uh, uh, this research. So that in some sense, you know, some people find that quite shocking to say the experience of the person that's very vague and subjective. Um, yeah, but, uh, <laughs> got to deal with what you're dealing with. So anyway, so that would be my, I, I do think it's important, um, for those reasons. Well, it's important that you take phenomenal subjective consciousness seriously and you put it front and center where um, today there's a, there's there's some growing skepticism about that. Yeah, exactly. And I, part of, you know, hopefully what we're seeing is phenomenal consciousness being taken a little bit more seriously, at least in scientific circles. I mean, by the way, not to circle back too much to IT, but this is why some people think that, you know, we don't want to have a bunch of wild theories running around because we're trying to sort of be respectable and establish a, a, a science of consciousness, like a cognitive neuroscience of consciousness. Um, and if, you know, if you imagine like what people do with attention, attention used to be like a, you know, a, a word that was vague and no one knew what it meant. And then now we have a whole branch of neuroscience that deals with attention, that theories of attention. Um, and they didn't get there by saying attention as a fundamental feature of the universe and everything has a little bit of attention. Outlets. They got there by positing a kind of model and then testing it, uh, a simple model. You know, so now, however you feel about attention, it's a whole uh, it's a whole area of neuroscience that you get a PhD in and then try to find a job working just on attention. Um, and the hope is that cognitive neuroscience of consciousness could end up like that, where you get a PhD in the neuroscience of consciousness and just do that. As opposed to having to say, oh, I study perception and then say, yeah, and I like consciousness. Or, you know, I, I do attention and I like consciousness, which is sort of how it is now. Um, you know, so so I don't know. I can, I'm a philosopher, so we get to talk about weird stuff and it doesn't really affect us. But I can kind of see that in the sociology of science, a lot more depends on funding agencies and this sort of, you know, perception from the outside plays a different role. And uh, whereas no one really outright says I'm a behaviorist, the hangover of behaviorism is um, it's evident. <laughs> and a lot of people don't like this talk of subjective states that you can't nail down behaviorally wise. Uh, so, yeah, I do think that uh, 
respectability should be on our minds. And, you know, there is this kind of line of argument that goes as follows. Consciousness size was established by some, by the credibility of some big shots. Uh, so Francis Crick and um, Christoph Koch kind of get credit for initiating the current scientific study of consciousness in some sense by, by broaching that topic. And of course, he only did that after he won the Nobel Prize in a different area, whether legitimately or not, who knows, but he did. And he had a bunch of like street cred uh, from, from that. And then he said, oh, let me talk about consciousness. And people took him seriously, in a sense, because he was a Nobel Prize winning guy. So no one would have really taken, no scientist probably would have taken the theories that they were saying about consciousness seriously without that street cred. And there's another famous case, Roger Penrose, another one. Um, famous guy comes in and says it's something about consciousness and people take it seriously because he's a famous guy. Um, so the line of argument goes, we kind of got to discharge a debt. So we, we borrowed some credibility from those famous guys. So we got to repay them by being serious <laughs> and not, and not simply, uh, running amok and, and, um, you know, doing some wild and wacky stuff. So, you know, I, I'm not a neuroscientist in that sense. Uh, so I, I, I don't really feel the force of the argument as much as someone who was in that field. But I do feel it somewhat. And I do sort of think, yeah, we want to behave reputably to some degree or other because the more serious guys are watching and we would like some money from them. Templeton funding us is nice, but if they're the only ones doing it, then, you know, that's a problem because we want the you know, National Endowment for the Sciences and big first rate funding agencies to think of consciousness as a legitimate topic of scientific inquiry. This, this is fair. Um, but, but nowadays there's, there's so much exciting stuff happening that's, um, friendly to these circles, right? Like ecological psychology, 4E cognition, that stuff. Yeah. Oh yeah. I saw you had Tony Stromero on, uh, I was going to watch that one too. Um, yeah, that's, that's a whole other approach, you know, that, uh, tries to make do without representations at, no, I wouldn't say at all, but tries to minimize the, the need for representations, um, which I think is very interesting. I'm not against that sort of view. Uh, I think that there are non-representational versions of higher theories that basically all of this stuff is work that should be done because, again, we don't know. But, uh, you know, someone should be working on higher theories as well. And so I guess that, you know, I used to say someone should write a book on this stuff, and I just hope it's not me, but not this looking like probably no one else is going to do it. I do think that the higher theory has been shrouded in a, a, a veil of philosophy for a long time, and it's been difficult for scientists to try to parse it out. So I don't know if I'm making that worse or better, but I, I want, I hope to try to make it better. <laughs> I, I think I have a weird experience where with philosophy, where as long as I've known philosophy, it's always been, well, you do the philosophy and then you go understand the relevant uh -huh. science and I mean, of course, there's no institutional support for that. You're going right. to just have to go and do it. Um, so it's always it's always striking to encounter how siloed off these things are. I mean, you, it does. You know, it does happen. You just experience it all the time. It happens more than that. I mean, I remember when I was first like, like into the graduate school of neuro uh, and I almost switched. I almost went from philosophy to uh, neuroscience, but I was too squeamish to deal with the rats. So once I started having to do like the surgery and chopping their heads off and opening the brain up and stuff, I was like, yeah, um, not that I was against that being done. Cause I do think that it's tragic that animals are used in research, but I also think that the knowledge gained can be justified by utilitarian means, for example, 
um, by the benefit of, to animals and humans. Although I think it's a difficult argument to make, and uh, the use of animals in science is a difficult topic. It's pretty brutal. But anyway, so uh, uh, so I was almost gonna like give up on philosophy and sort of try to focus on doing science. And I had worked in a couple labs or whatever. Um, but, but, uh, it, the, the animal labs were just too, too much for me. Um, so that, that's when I switched to, to, uh, doing psychology, but I forgot even what I was, why I started saying this. Now I got distracted by thinking about the rats. Sorry. I, I lost my point. <laughs> the, the, the separation, the silos of, Oh, the silos. Right. Exactly. So I remember when I first started, uh, going down that route, I was taking more graduate level classes in neuroscience, um, going to conferences and hanging out with the lab, more, uh, the lab, people in the lab and visiting the lab and stuff. Um, they were saying they're going to go to this interdisciplinary conference that they're the scientists. And I remember thinking, Oh, cool. Wow. Gee, what's it going to be like philosophy and, and neuroscience. And they were like, no, it's going to be the electrophysiology people and the cell and the genetics people. Um, so they were both neural. There was a neuroscience conference, <laughs> but the electrophys people were going to talk to the molecular genetics people. And this was big news. Like, cause these people never talked to each other. So the siloing effect is even worse. I mean, I never would have thought of that as interdisciplinary. I was like, that's all neuroscience, right? And they're like, Oh no, 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 no. Like they do something completely different than we do. And we're, and so anyway, it was like mind opening for me to realize that that by interdisciplinary, that was interdisciplinary. So when we think of neuroscience and philosophy, um, that's already too, uh, like large of a scale. You got to think about like analytic philosophy and cognitive neuroscience, um, or something like that. But, uh, these things, the siloing is everywhere. And that's kind of sadly, you know, we've known this ever since CP snow and the two cultures, people have sort of known that we've been, the, the academic culture itself kind of fosters this siloing, um, which is why I've, you know, made a essential thing in my work to try to bust out of that silo and to try to get over and talk to the people in the other areas and work with them even and write papers together. And what we find is we don't often speak the same language. You know, we are using the word representation. Ledoux means something different than I mean by it. Uh, it take, you know, we have to find out, oh, okay, so how do we say things that, because we're using the same word, but actually meaning different things by it. Um, it's actually very difficult to try to work interdisciplinary. So that's why people silo, um, I think, partially because the academic structure kind of makes it easy, but also because it's easy to talk to people who know what you're talking about. <laughs> and, and if you use a shared vocabulary who have, who cite the same people and you go, oh, you can cite have 1944, go, oh, yes, have. Uh, whereas if you're in a different discipline, you may not know who the fuck's Donald Head. Like, I have no idea. So those lineages of like what we have in common, um, and if I make a casual reference, will you get it or not? I think that really is has a large contributing factor. Yeah, I, I think I misspoke where uh, the, the siloing is the default. You, you have to silo, but some people do it, and some people lean into it completely and are happy to, where others kind of, do it begrudgingly, but still think outside of those lines. Exactly. I mean, you know, I, I think of myself as like, I think of myself as a philosopher, but I also think that at a certain point, like some of the papers I've written are in theoretical neuroscience. Um, and they're written by a philosopher. I teach neuroscience classes. And, you know, I think some of the papers that Joe Ledoux has written are philosophy papers. Um, and he's a neuroscientist. So I think that at a certain point, 
we kind of recognize that these questions, well, it doesn't, that can be answered. For, the, the difference between how I would answer the question, how someone like Joe would answer a question is because of our training. Um, and so how we conceptualize the question uh, and what we might think of as the possible answers um, given like where we have come from, but we're sort of thinking about the same stuff and trying to answer similar questions, um, which is why we want to break out of these styles. Anyway, I must be getting tired because I'm losing my train of thought a lot lately. So, uh, I was trying to say that I think it's important, to, and I, I agree with you what you're saying, that to break out of these silos um, and to get these dialogues, even if you don't agree, uh, I think that you're always... I mean, it, it really becomes easy to wrap yourself deep into a theory. And in fact, that's sort of what your time in school is like. You want to get into a certain corner of theoretical space. And then you want to see it from that point of view and then see where you can make a contribution or add something or like say, no, this connects over there. Um, but what's really challenging is to be able to do that and then go to a completely, like for instance, thinking about higher to theories and then to sort of uproot your entire mental system and then say, what if I'm a panpsychist now? Or what if I'm a global workspace theorist? That's very difficult to do. And I, I think people, you spend so much time trying to understand a particular point of view that trying to understand another one is almost, it's, it's, it's alien. It's difficult to break out of the conceptual structure that you had to build in order to understand in the detail that you do this particular way of approaching it. Which is why when you really look at what a lot of work is, when they object to another theory, they're just expressing their own theory in another way, so to speak. The objection doesn't really target the other theory because they haven't really put themselves in that position and fully thought out, like, from this point of view, what does the theory say? Which is why I always tell students, it's really easy to tear down another person's theory. What's really difficult is to say, why would a non-idiot come to this view? Why would someone who's not stupid but is intelligent have this theoretical outlook, which from my point of view is so strange or whatever, that's much more difficult because it requires sort of taking serious the other way of looking at things. Um, and people just find out very difficult to do uh, because it, it requires, first of all, saying, gee, I might be wrong. <laughs> so let me put a pin in what I believe. And the closer you get toward their core beliefs, like you see this really with ethics and religious beliefs, like the closer you get towards and consciousness is in there, by the way, because it's centered on ethics, religion, you know, consciousness. I think that they all come, uh, that they are tightly joined as a kind of core to a lot of central questions to like our personal identities in a way. Um, so that messing with one or the other can feel very uncomfortable. Uh, which is why, I mean, I mean, I really, I to sum all this up in my, put it uh, together, hopefully, um, I really endorse the kind of Socratic idea about what philosophy is, that the, to really should question one's own belief until you get to the point where you recognize that you don't know. That that's what philosophy really is, is a self-evaluation, a self-undermining self in a way. Everything that you think you're going to lean on as your fundamental crutch, that's where you got to focus on and say, why do I believe that? What's the evidence for it? And should I believe it? And why would a person who's as intelligent or more than me not believe that even if you think it's the bedrock of your whole existence and some people find that very unsettling that you could question some fundamental like you know like core that there is a self that there is a physical reality that there is a god or whatever that consciousness is real 
it can be very unsettling. So I, I think that part of part of this, you know, um, this exercise is enlightening in that deep sense of enlightening that it teaches you not only about yourself, but about just something deep about our place in reality, seeing things from other people's point of view. And it sounds kind of like something casually you just say, oh, seeing it from their point of view, but actually doing it is very difficult. Uh, entering into another person's worldview seriously is very challenging. And you know, Aristotle said the work of an educated mind is to entertain the view without accepting it. So I think we can kind of casually recite that, but I actually think that's a deep insight. Yeah, it's actually very hard to entertain something without accepting it, um, to, to, take, to say, if this were true, how would the world be without fully endorsing the truth of it? Um, so anyway, so I do think that whatever, whatever philosophy turns out academically, in life, that core idea of self-evaluation that, that Socrates had, that is know thyself, um, and, that, and that it ultimately leads you to a place where real knowledge begins, which is admitting that you don't know, um, that's, uh, that, that'll never go away. Yeah, yeah to, to me, being an interdisciplinary in, in any sense is always really difficult because, I mean, um, you have to, just, just because of the amount of work, right, that you need a ton of training from a ton of different areas. And so always the fear of giving into a certain perspective or through the crowd or this or that. Um, yeah. And, and to your credit, like you've, I think you've done a, have done a lot for making philosophy accessible and putting it on the internet. And I, I know your channel has been one that I've, I've gotten certainly back to a bunch of times. And I'm, I'm sure that's the experience for a lot of people. So, Yeah. Yeah, I'm surprised by that, but uh, cool. <laughs> I I never know if I, I. Anyway, yes, no, I appreciate you saying that. Yeah, I mean that seems like a best place as any to to end it off. Um, did you everything you would like to sign off on? Yeah, I just want to say thanks for inviting me, and this has been a great discussion. And I think that channels like yours that try to have serious discussions with people that we need more of them, and a lot of. Uh, philosophy channels they're, they're they're out there it's you know somewhat surprising that there are a lot of philosophy channels out there but some of them lean into this really argumentative style of debate where it's like you know people yelling at each other and even i've been sucked into that because it's hard not to um but um it's it's philosophy is best done coolly and passionately is fine but uh without you know belittling or making other people feel stupid or trying to play a gotcha game so conversations that are like this that are in depth, open ended and try to, you know, just try to get what a person thinks without trying to undermine their position or make them um feel attacked or something like that. I think it's important. And I think that so I'm more than happy to be involved with this kind of stuff. But uh generally I hope more people subscribe to your channel. You only have a thousand subscribers or so at this point. So we need more people to come over here and check out these cool conversations. Wow, thank you. Thank you so much. Um thank you for taking the time. <laughs>